Hello, everyone. Welcome to Through the Years, episode 50. Yes, this is the podcast where we review Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. And for 50 episodes, you've heard this voice, Trevor Dane, this horrible voice. And then the other voice you've heard for 50 episodes is, as always, the more melodious, just comforting, has a new headset mic, the sound of Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we've been here for 50 episodes, three years, I actually made a playlist archiving all the shows recently just because Big Round Number was coming up. It's 135 hours, not counting this episode. So assuming we do the average around three hours, give or take, by the end of this episode, we will have done 138 hours of audio. That is over five and a half days, I think. Just the, the, too much. Too much. I – um. First of all, it's the first time anyone's ever complimented the sound of my voice, whether it be speaking or singing. So you're in a, a rare, you're in rare company, I guess. As in, there's no one that's with you. Um, but you know, you, you know, it is. We we have talked a lot, and in some ways, it's that's an impressive sounding number. Then I think about all the people that do this every single week, including watching a show, also, and I'm like, how? How does anyone do this with a life and anything? So my hats off to them because this seems like a lot of work, and it took us what three and a half years to do this <laughs> yeah and I, I was just thinking like we do a podcast that's you know give or take a little bit three hours we do it probably every three to four weeks you know sometimes a little quicker sometimes a little l- later but and I, I was thinking it probably takes me for every three hour show it's we also watch a three hour show and for me between just notes and research and stuff it probably takes me another three hours beyond that so i'm just thinking so if you times the Five and a half days by three, we've devoted probably a half a month of our lives each to, um, you know, if that was no sleep or anything to this. Imagine, there, like you were saying, there are people that do three-hour podcasts every week. Like, how much of their lot and who have been doing it for years longer than us, like – it's going to be a, an insanely significant chunk of your life, like when you put it into that kind of uh, – quantification where you just put into like how many days is this how many weeks is this i mean those the, the you know those nut bars that between the sheets do like what like a six hour podcast every two seconds or something it's, <laughs> like at some point they've done probably more podcasts than like essential human things probably it's just yeah. crazy i mean i guess when there's money involved it's more of a motivator but there are plenty of people that do this for free also just like us and like yeah, like I think about like Conrad Thompson. I've said this before. Who's? I mean, I've, obviously, I mean, I assume he makes a lot of money off of those shows. There certainly are enough advertisements on them. But, um, <laughs> but like you know, he does that what like four times a week, and like a lot of times he's watching a show for the podcast, and he has a regular business that he runs, and a child, and a marriage, and it's like, well, I ain't complaining. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I thought actually we I think we did this once a long time ago where um it was probably one of the year end episodes where I thought we should thank a lot of people but another side effect of us being around for fifty episodes in three years is we've been around long enough that I occasionally feel like well there's certain things we we should say or do again so I thought we should just kind of go through the history of the show very quickly and thank the people along the way because I was thinking back Matt and in a weird way. This whole show, the first two people that are kind of in some ways responsible or to be blamed for the show are the Cubs fan, the famous, you know, our friend and our famous, uh, the English language, uh, Lucha news source extraordinaire and Joe Gagne, because 
the Cubs fan always has www.thecubsfan.com. You know, people know the Lucha blog, but less people maybe know thecubsfan.com, which he often used just as a place to put his friend's podcast to host them. And then we got Joe versus the world, Joe Gagne's podcast, which is, I'm not going to say that's the first wrestling podcast ever, but at least in certain circles, I would say it was a pretty influential, you know, a lot of the people that did that show were either people that have just started their own wrestling podcast. And that was like, an early guest appearance somewhere else for them, or there are people like you and me that went on to start podcasts after guesting. And Matt, I always, I was thinking about this, like was, was Joe versus the world, your first podcast, like at least in a wrestling context, the first that I was on or the first that I listened to your first guest appearance. Oh yeah. I mean, I, who else would have me on a podcast? (laughs) Joe Gabby. That was one great thing about Joe is that he would have people on that he knew if he thought that they knew what they were talking about even if they were complete nobodies. And I was a complete nobody. Like I, like there, I was not, I was, I was literally, I'm just still, I mean, I'm still obviously just a nobody, oh. but no, I mean, like I, I'm happy that way, but I, um, but ju- I'm just a guy, you know, just a guy who went yeah. to ROH shows. Like I didn't have any sort of profile anywhere. You know, some people who were on message boards with me knew me and found me annoying. And, um, and you know, I just, Joe and I hooked up, you know, as in like sat next to each other and talked, not the other kind of hooked up. Oh, I wish. Um, at, at an RO, at an ROH show in, um, in Connecticut in 2005. And then by the spring of 2006, I was basically the ROH correspondent. Please don't go back and listen to those. Um, but basically the ROH correspondent on Joe versus the world. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, and of course, like you said, Cubs fan hosted that show, then later hosted my show. And uh, and then hosted our show for the first four so, episodes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, sorry. No, no, no. You, you go on. Sorry. Well, and then of course Joe. You know, the our uh, our pod father, so to speak. He's still on the show. He'll be on in a couple episodes. Uh, we uh, we love having him on. He's the best. We like making fun of him too. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but actually- really, but really, we think he's the best. Because funny, like that, my first wrestling podcast was episode, I believe, I think it was 50 of Joe versus the world where he decided that like anyone that wanted to be on just for a couple of minutes could submit. And I had vaguely known Joe and I had known a lot of the people like you that had been guests on his podcast. And I thought like Joe was going to be more like structured, like I would bring a topic, but then he'd ask questions or stuff. And I didn't realize Joe was just going to basically be like, this is your time. I'm kind of going to let you run with it. And I haven't listened back to it. I can't. But if you listen to my short segment on the 50th episode of Joe versus the world, you see me quickly realize like Joe isn't really going to be engaging in much of a back and forth. And I have nothing to say. And you're just going to you can practically hear the cold sweat. And the panic, and I just pick up a PW Insider magazine, I mean not PW, Insider, uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and just start reading a random article about the 10 nastiest things the Nasty Boys have ever done until Joe, like, puts me off the air and he made fun of me afterwards and all that stuff. And I remember after that show, I said, like, I'm never going to do a wrestling podcast ever again, but if I ever do, I'm going to be so overprepared so that never happens to me again. And then... (laughs) <laughs> you and I had known each other since we, yeah, you know where this is going. You and I had known each other since we were like teenagers and AOL instant messenger chats, the same forums. And we used to talk about ring of honor, but we hadn't talked in years and years. Kind of, I usually don't, I always am afraid of imposing on it on anybody. So like, I don't really talk first appeal. It's not that I don't enjoy talking, but 
You, of course, started your own great podcast, we've, which we've plugged before on thecubsfan.com, list them and learn. And you were, you would, you know, have a guest on and do top 10 lists of sometimes about wrestling, sometimes about entertainment. And out of nowhere, you like, you had the insanity to be like, you know, that guy that only has one wrestling podcast appearance and he did horribly that no one's like talked to in years. Like, how about I bring him back? Cause I remember talking to him and we did the episode. I believe it was like 10 worst booking de- decisions in wrestling history. And I prepared for that so much and like read, reread things and watched footage like for a, and I remember, I think you were like, Oh yeah, I just wrote this, my top 10, like the, an hour or two before the podcast. I'm so lazy. <laughs> and I, no, and I just felt like the biggest weirdo then over preparing. But I remember you being like, "Oh, this this is this did good." And then, hey, would you like to do another episode where we go over knowing that we had the Ring of Honor connection? You know, like the ten best wrestlers in Ring of Honor history. And then after you did that, as we've mentioned before, the origin of the show is you saying after that episode, like, "How about we just do the, a show that covers Ring of Honor like chronologically?" You mentioned like, um. Where the big where boys the play. Big boys play as kind of like not necessarily to ape the show, but just like match if we could do a show that was even that close in quality, you know, because we both enjoyed that show, but for Ring of Honor instead of WCW, and so we started doing it. And then after four episodes, Chad Campbell, one of the co-hosts of Where the Big Boys Play, which is the show, a show on the Pro Wrestling Net only network, the network we're on, but. That's a great show. If you like, I've, we've plugged it before, but not any time recently. If you like the sh- kind of show we do, but about WCW, they covered up till I forget, like early '93 maybe or late '92. Every pay- WCW pay per view and Clash of the Champions, they did a great job. Great podcast, Parv and Chad Campbell. And so Chad was an early listener of our show. Asked us four episodes in, would you like to come to the Pro Wrestling Only Network? He's been just always really nice to us a big supporter always mocks me for um not reviewing being a a, a grumpy person when it comes to how highly i rate these matches he still uploads our podcast for us so yeah huge part of the show to this day yeah and and um and beyond that i just i think the only people we have to thank is just everyone that's ever listened whether it's for an hour or all or all 135 and of course all our great guests i mean every guest we don't have guests on very often because i think we're a podcast where at least i am i'm extremely stressed about putting anybody out for even a second which is probably also not coincidentally why most of our guests have been people that have been like explicitly told us like i would like to do your show like i think maybe the only person that that we came to them was Joe Sposto, who even me coming to him was like, he's been so nice to us publicly and talking about enjoying the podcast that like we should have him on. And there's other people I'd like to have on, but it's just, again, I think it's, it's just, I, it's, it's a, it's a big ask to do this show three hours, often on a weekend night, a lot of, you know, it's hard for me to justify asking people to do that sometimes without feeling monstrously guilty. But all our guests have been great. You know, Alan Cunahan, Justin Shapiro, Joe Sposto, Joe Sposto, uh, Joe Gagne, Keith Lipinski, just everybody has been great guests, 
and everyone that's ever listened, like you have so many options when it comes to wrestling podcasts. The fact that you've spent any of your time like listening to us, it's it's always like a super cool. I hope I hope that feeling whenever someone says, "Oh, I really like the podcast," like I still to this day get like a little just that little drip of endorphin rush, like, "Oh, that feels good." That's a little more serotonin on my on my brain and i hope that matt i hope that never goes away yeah i mean and i I guess i should also add as far as uh, the people to thank um there are a few other people first of all people different people who have run the pro wrestling only podcast network at different points um because it's been more than one um absolutely yes um um you know and i'm 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 hesitant to say names because i don't always honestly totally know who's running it at a given time um do you know who's running it right now um (laughs) Uh, I know, I know Charles in the past. I, I mean, I don't and know. I'm, who pretty, I'm pretty sure John, thing. John at one point did. Um, but so I can't say for sure, but both of them, thank you very much. Um, but, um, also, uh, I want to thank, um, kind of our, uh, our, our brothers almost in doing a similar job. Um, Jeff Schwartz and Shane Hagedorn at an honorable yes. mention. Uh, they, boost our show a decent amount of the time you know they're they're big supporters on their own show they're big supporters on twitter listening to their show is great inspiration for us you know it's a uh, you know kind of trying to gives gives us something to aim toward they do it every they do what we do possibly better oh definitely better and um uh, definitely better than me um trevor oh, trevor has an excessive amount of research that i still find extremely stop impressive it. um and definitely um you know they do it every week you know, which is a lot more yeah, impressive. They make us look bad. That's why I didn't want to give them a shout out. Those uh, we we've given them enough plugs. Those sons of bitches yeah. making us look bad because they do it again. We were talking about you know how we think it's like oh man, look at the 135 hours they do a show of that length every single week. Plus like just plus Patreon material. Um, yeah, insanity. Yeah, definitely check them out if you haven't. Um, also, I want to thank Gabe Sapolsky, uh, which I did not expect to be saying, but he gave us gave our show a big signal boost multiple times. Over the past yeah. few years, and I really think he's uh, definitely increased our um, our profile. So uh, thank you, Gabe. <laughs> That's it's yeah. very very kind of you, especially you know you know we're not always so kind back. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I feel like we, I feel like we're fair. I think I think even Gabe would admit we're pretty fair. Um, you know, I, I I to this day still think that Gabe, if anything, he's almost underrated. I think his booking at that time. Um, I think he did a great job, but your commentary, you know. Thank you, Gabe. <laughs> well, I th- I think we've also been two people that I mean the number of times I've had to say on people on Twitter be like oh that Gabe commentary and I I will continue to say one of the big things I've learned from this rewatch so far is like Gabe is not even the bottom three in worst Ring of Honor commentators in the first year. Yes, like, it's true, but but no, but yes, no. I think I think he actually had a lot of strengths as a commentator. He had some weaknesses as well. Yeah, I, I would say with Gabe, if we're just getting to his commentary, I don't know. This thank you turns into a, a, a strict evaluation we're, of his commentary. We're, we're, we're transitioning to doing our job, you know what I mean? I, I would say, like, Gabe had some, like, definite strengths and weaknesses. Like, obviously, he's not a natural commentator, but there's some commentators where it's almost like you don't notice them. And Gabe's a kind of, of a guy where on commentary, you notice them, and half the time it's for good reasons, and half the time it's bad. Like, He's a guy where he takes a lot of shots and he misses some, but he hits some too, where I would say like compared to a guy like Doug Gentry, who was the color guy, where like Doug, very rarely did he say something stupid, but very rarely did he say something that added to the show. He was just kind of a neutral presence. So I can kind of in some ways sympathize with for the guy that's like, 
putting himself out there more and also making more mistakes because maybe I relate to that in my life. But no, I, I think I'm, I'm really thankful though, Matt, that you like all those guys, all those guys that you mentioned, they're all definitely people we should thank. And in terms of, and you know, Gabe is not the only person involved in indie wrestling or even in ring of honor that has mentioned the show. And I just want to say that like, much like the Doughboys podcast through the years can't be bought. And all I can pledge is we're going to give our honest opinions and, I am sure sooner or later we will say something if you listen long enough that pisses off pretty much anyone. But I will just say that we come by our opinion, opinions honestly. We're not trying to hurt anyone's feelings. And also, I think like I – at least I, I think you are too – very hyper aware that like it's just two people's opinions. Like I don't think – I never predisposed to think that like we speak for – the majority of people or anyone but ourselves. Like, I think some people are like, you know, can you believe this man? Like, blah, blah, blah. Like just, I'm, I don't think we ever speak with a very like authoritative voice where we act like this is the way it's been for everybody. No, and I don't think anyone's ever accused us of that. So I think we, <laughs> we, we do a pretty good job of seeming that way, but I have to be honest. I am on the AEW payroll and um, that's why I talk a lot about the 18 to 49 demographic. Um, <laughs> which um, nobody not on the AEW payroll has ever paid attention to. So um, that's a that's a Twitter joke, I guess. <laughs> I'm on the kids Nickelodeon payroll, which is why I'm, I'm definitely only talking about things that are from that one that appeal to like the three to five demographic. So we're going to be talking a lot later about the Wiggles halfway through the show. It's going to be a weird diversion, but diversion, but I think we'll make it work. Is that is that the popular thing right now? Uh, honestly, <laughs> my, my niece is like aged out of chilled long ago. So like I m- – my finger is so off the pulse of what the kids are into, Matt. Like uh, around Kim Possible is the last time I was like, hey, I'm learning through this kid what kids today are watching. Like, Yeah, you know, I don't think – you know, I think it's fine. I don't, th- don't think you need to know. I think, I think it's <laughs> – until you have children, Trevor, I think you're good – being uh, unaware of that sort of thing. So this this has gone on longer than I thought. This I've been rambling. I, the I'm point the point is, it. thank you for thank to you everybody. everybody. Thank you so 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 much. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the reason we do the show is because we enjoy doing it. But it's the nicest bonus to know that we're not just doing into a vacuum, and it's not just two people listening, and that people genuinely enjoy it. So thank you so much, and we'll keep doing it till it's not fun anymore, or until this era of Ring of Honor stops being good, which I guess would mean not being fun anymore. Yeah, like th- this, have- this is the other thing. You, you gave a disclaimer about, you know, we're going to say things that piss people off. But, like, at the end of the day, like, we're doing the show because we love Ring of Honor during this era. And, like, we're mostly going to say good things. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, it's, um, so I don't know how – it's probably going to be a while before I piss anybody off with any of my analysis because I just – I enjoy this. <laughs> And, and people sometimes have asked me, like, how long is the show going to run? And I would say, like, at our current pace forever. But, like, in terms of what shows we cover, and I think we've never set a firm limit. But the thing, I, I guess, we've never really revealed this before. But I think the thing we would say is we kind of have in place probably, like, we have all the shows. That, like, it, it, we've gotten acquired, like, digital copies of everything because I sold a lot of my DVDs of shows through the end of 2007. We kind of consider that, like, and I think after that, we'd probably have to have a discussion of where we want to go. But I think we've both agreed that, like, 
I don't think we have any interest in covering Ring of Honor like past the gate era at the latest. Like I don't have any personal interest in really covering. No offense to some of the. I mean, there was some good stuff there, but like the Adam Pierce era of Ring of Honor is just not something like. I would be covering. I don't think ever. And and if we did, I mean, that would be it. Like, I, I I don't think we'd go much into like Sinclair or anything like that. But like, let's say we did go to like the end of two thousand and eight. Um, like, I'm not saying we're going to do that, but let's say we did. I feel like at this rate, we're talking about another like legitimately ten years, right? Yeah, yeah. I like, mean, not even exaggerating, right? Yeah, this would be a like. So, in terms of like. People who ask that question, I understand the curiosity and hope that gives you some idea of where our heads are at. But like if you're worried about the show ending, unless – you know, it could end at any time for whatever reason one of us decides it's just not fun anymore. But like in terms of content, like at the rate we're going, just covering like peak Gabe Sapolsky booked era Ring of Honor should take us like most of our adult lives. So I, I wouldn't worry. Um, yeah. Anyway. Any, any, yeah. So – Matt, as always, we cover these shows. Um, sometimes we there's news that happens between the Ring of Honor shows. There's just one or two pieces of news that happened between the last Ring of Honor show and this one. But one of them is, I think, super interesting. And it's not like a secret. People have heard about it in the past. But I think it's – for people that didn't come out during this era, it might be a surprise. And it's just a really interesting story. So this is from the Wrestling Observer. Dave Meltzer writes – a really strange story is that Fumahiko Uai, who um, – Dave doesn't say this, but this would be the booker of New Japan Pro Wrestling at this time. He tried to put together a deal to get Samoa Joe to drop the Ring of Honor belt to Hiroshi Tanahashi this past month at a Korokin Hall show. New Japan was willing to pay $6,000 for the title change, but both Joe and Gabe Sapolsky turned down the deal. I can't understand it, Dave writes. For one thing – Neither Joe nor the Ring of Honor title have any history in Japan, so to have a title change right off the bat really would mean Tanahashi hasn't won anything of value. The idea would be Tanahashi would then drop it back after a month or so. Sapolsky felt that after keeping the title on Joe for so long that it made no sense to have a title change overseas, and he didn't mark out over the idea of a New Japan guy holding their belt. New Japan felt that since they sent Shinya Makabe to Los Angeles to put over Joe— and Dave writes in brackets, something only the most hardcore of New Japan fans would even be aware, ever be aware of since it was never acknowledged or any clip shown on TV, that Joe should return the favor. Joe actually has never worked for New Japan except for its Los Angeles tapings. So, Matt, yeah, like, it's crazy to think that, you know, knowing what Tanahashi would become, like, we talk about, you know, Joe versus Kabashi in 2005 and eventually he'd wrestle um, Misawa and Noah. Like, we could have had a Joe versus Tanahashi match for a title in 2004. And New Japan offered $6,000. I just – I don't know how much of that would have been to just Joe or to Ring of Honor or what, but it's it, it's crazy. And I got some more to add to it first, but just like – do you remember this? Like, and for for those who who are wondering the Shinya Makabe thing, I think we've covered it a little bit. Uh, Joe was like a trainer at the LA Dojo New Japan had at this time, and uh, they had a brief t- local TV show with matches there. And uh, in fact, I think we recently covered like a thing where 
Dave wrote in the Observer how they were ending the show, and Dave said from me watching it was weird because it felt like more of a commercial for Ring of Honor than it did New Japan. And I believe a match there was uh, Joe def- defending the title, the Ring of Honor title, an official defense against Shinya Makabe, who of course became a uh, Togi Makabe in modern New Japan. But just what a what a weird thing. <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember it at all. Didn't know about it at the time. Wasn't following it closely enough to know about it. Um, did you? Uh, I, I remember, yeah. And actually, um, I went back today and watched part of uh, Samoa Joe's 2004 Ring of Honor shoot interview that he uh, – his straight shooting release that he recorded, I just think, two or three months before this probably. And he actually said um, they wanted him to drop the title to Shinya Maccabi at that show and they asked him he said no i can't do it you know ring of honors invested too much into me and they wouldn't want this and you know they've been good to me then they asked him a second time would you drop the towel he still said don't say this so they said fine you can you can beat him and then they came back with this with the six thousand dollar offer which he doesn't name tanahashi by name but in the shoot interview he references like a big amount of money he had to turn down which i i have to assume that it was this story and he um he, it, it was really interesting the shoot interview because he talks about he was like yeah I would be working for New Japan, you know a few months ago and the only holdup is me holding the title because I can't lose. But and then the interviewer asked him a question and I thought this was really interesting. It wasn't Gabe doing the interview, but I wonder if this was a question someone there had written to ask. And they said they asked Joe like, do you think New Japan is, is asking you and their interest in you is more based on you? Or the idea of the Ring of Honor title. And he says, sometimes I think it's the Ring of Honor title, you know, sometimes not. But looking at the fact that New Japan did not book him, like after the championship, after he lost the title, it really does feel like, and Joe in the shoot says, you know, that New Japan's mindset was basically, they wanted the credibility of having like a US title on some of their younger guys and the WWE titles obviously weren't available to them and the NW titles weren't available. They weren't working with TNA at this time. And so they deemed Ring of Honor as like the biggest gettable title they could get their hands on. And definitely like, I don't know this for a fact, but just looking at, at how Joe never really got a shot in New Japan. It, it does really feel like reading the story that they just were more interested in could we get this title from this guy? Yeah. Um, it's also worth noting um, New Japan of 2004 is not the New Japan of 2020, nor was it the New Japan of 1994. Like the 2000s were kind of a down period for New Japan. Um, in fact, I don't know what the, um, you know, and they, they might have had the best business of any company in the Japan. I'm not sure, but it was also considered just like a down period for Japanese wrestling in general. I know there was plenty of great stuff, but it didn't get the level of attention that it had gotten in the previous era or that it gets now. Um, I feel like actually the promotion that got the most attention, at least around America, and maybe it was just because of how Dave Meltzer covered it at this, t- at this time, was actually Noah. So when, when uh, ROH started booking the Noah guys in 2005, that was treated as a much bigger deal than this was. And I, you know, again, I don't know, know enough about like what the comparative businesses were doing for between Noah and New Japan in 2004, but I just know what the perception was here. And it was that Noah was a bigger deal. Noah, I think there was a brief, it might have been, it might have been a two or three years after this, but there was definitely a, 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 
time period where Noah definitely felt like had even overtaken business-wise New Japan briefly when New Japan was on a real low ebb. And like you mentioned, different ownership for New Japan at this era, different um, booker booking, different everything. And in fact, you know, the era, you know, people celebrate now the gay, the Gato era, the Tanahashi Okada era. You know, what one of the reasons why that is celebrated is because it is largely seen as creatively and like business-wise digging New Japan out of a hole that this era was digging for them like or i guess climbing out of a hole that this era was digging for them so yeah it's and maybe one of the reasons one of the many things you could say points to a problem with new japan this era is the fact that they had someone that would seem like a natural fit for new japan who was working in their la dojo who just is an insane talent in his prime and they didn't seem to have any real serious interest in this guy in samoa joe like just staggering yeah I mean, I don't have much more to say than that. Yeah, yeah. and the other news story, Matt, just a little tidbit, which was um, Dave mentioned the Observer, that um, there was plants, and this actually happened, I actually watched a clip of it today. Uh, Rocky Romero got booked by New Japan back when New Japan was shoot fight crazy into a shoot fight with another wrestler, Masahito Kakahara. And they actually had a shoot fight. I watched clips of this. Uh, I know Dave wrote in The Observer at the time. He didn't know if this was a shoot or or like a work shoot. But uh, Rocky Romero loses by knee bar. But it's uh, – I think it happened in October of this year. But it's interesting that like Rocky Romero would have a shoot fight like during the same time and – and uh, as as uh, Dave wrote in The Observer, he thought it would be a bad idea because Rocky Romero apparently got legitimately knocked out during his match on the show we're going to cover today. And right around the same time, they were like, yeah, New Japan wants him to go do a shoot fight. But um, that brings us to the show proper. That would be Ring of Honor Gold, named for Gold, because, of course, this is the 50th show, the 50th anniversary. Um, let me just see it. Oh God! I normally you I am off because normally I start these shows with the date and the attendance, and I put it in the wrong spot. Ring of Honor Gold took place October fifteenth, two thousand four, at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds in Dayton, Ohio, in front of a reported crowd of five hundred and twenty-five fans. Um, this was a show, Matt, where um, uh. It was it was a weird show for Dayton because this was basically a make or break show for Dayton. As we'll go to the torch, uh, they wrote Ray of Honor Booker and promoter Gabe Sapolsky says Dayton, Ohio, has one more chance to become a regular Ring of Honor stop. Yes, we will go where the fans want us eat enough want us enough so that we can break even on a show. He tells the torch. Honestly, October fifteenth is a last chance for Dayton. We did well there last time, but needed another hundred to two hundred people. If we get the numbers we need to break even on this show, we will be back. If we don't, then unfortunately we won't be back. I really hope the people come out because it's always a great crowd in Dayton. Last time those people were on their feet for 40 minutes for the Punk versus Joe match, and then they were still loud and on their feet for the following match. It's real frustrating when you have a great crowd like that, but need 100 to 200 more people to make the show financially possible. We are always looking forward to, for looking for new places to run. We just need the right kind of support. So yeah, uh, I, I forgot the exact attendance for the last show. The previous show they had in Dayton was the World Title Classic, the first Punk Joe 60-minute draw. And I think that did like around 400 people. And luckily, the show did in fact do that 525. And in fact, uh, 
Gabe would talk to the torch again right after the show, and I'll go back to the torch. Ring of Honor promoter Gabe Sapolsky says after recent strong attendance in both Chicago and Dayton, he considers both home markets for Ring of Honor. Dayton drew around 500, and Chicago drew around 700, and Gabe says, We had tremendous crowds each time in Chicago and Dayton that came to have fun and give their support to the performers and to the Ring of Honor product. Sapolsky says, they were very enthusiastic and pushed the guys to work even harder in the ring. We all really enjoyed the trips there and have nothing but fun. We uh, we had some of our most memorable matches and moments in Chicago and Dayton and plan to add to those in 2005. Uh, ring of Honor is also claiming that they did record merchandise sales in Dayton and Chicago. Um, Matt, it's kind of funny like that this was the show that did the big attendance that like saved it. Because if you look at the card, it's probably one of the – from like – I would just say like the least sexy from like if you just consider where the name value of these guys were in 2004. It's one of like the least sexy cards Ring of Honor had put on I, I would say anywhere of the year. Um, yeah, I can see that. I guess what it just shows is that the reputation of the brand over the summer really clawed its way back to being something that people really wanted to go out of their way to see. You know, they went to see Ring of Honor. They went to see, you know, just Samoa Joe and CM Punk and Homicide were considered – just stars in their own right. So it's sort of like, you know, a WWE show uh, at the time where it's like people are just showing up to see this, the names, you know, the matchups themselves. You know, they make a big difference for a company like ROH, but people will still go even to see those stars, even if, even if the matchups are not top of the line matchups. And I wonder how much of it is that maybe word of mouth from the 60-minute draw going to Dayton and how much of it might be even – like I wonder if Gabe even I, – I doubt it, but maybe even Gabe saying like, look, if the show doesn't draw this time, we're never coming back here. Like, Could make a difference. I think it's also just you know they had a reputation. I mean listen, listen to our last like 10 podcasts. They had a reputation of putting on good shows all the time, and they did. So people who went to ROH shows got their money's worth. And it, it's crazy, like, again, it it shows the depth where they were able to – someone wrote, I think, to in a live report to PW Insider, like, all the people they were missing. This person wrote, no Briscoes, which, of course, maybe people didn't know at the time, but the Briscoes were going to be gone for a long time. But it still felt like a recent loss at this time. No Cabana. He, he was in um, the U.K., at this time on his first excursion there, I think no, um, no Brian Danielson. He was, I think in Japan, no low key, uh, no John Walters, even defending the pure title, no Ricky Reyes. So no tag team, Rocky Romero was there, but no Ricky Reyes, no Julius smokes even. So, I mean, so sad, uh, but maybe in a way, the most impactful loss on this double shot was no Steve Carino because one of the big hooks for this entire weekend, it was this show and the next night in Chicago, which will be our next show, was it was supposed to be Steve Carino's return for the first time in around like a year to in-ring action for Ring of Honor. Of course, he um, made his like just an angle return at Glory by Honor 3 coming to CM Punk's aid. But this was supposed to be – he was supposed to be in the six-band tag main event we're going to talk about tonight. And he was supposed to wrestle Samoa Joe for the Ring of Honor world title the next night. And – because that he had to pull out, and we'll go into why in just a second, that's why we got Joe versus Punk 2. It was never supposed to be a trilogy. There was never supposed to be a second one-hour draw. That was all on-the-fly Gabe feeling like we had to do a – and we'll get into it in way more detail in the next episode because there's a lot to go through there. But like Gabe felt like we had to give a big replacement to uh, that. But 
pretty wild. And actually, I can go through it right now. Carino actually to- gave a reason why he had to pull out of these shows. If I can just scroll up to find it. Oh, yeah. Um, Carino ins- issued a statement regarding his removal from Ring of, Ring of Honor's Dayton and Chicago events earlier this month. Carino writes, To the Ring of Honor management and fans, much to my dismay, Mr. Hashimoto from Zero One was full, was forced to pull me off this weekend's Ring of Honor shows in Dayton and Chicago. With recent injuries to Shinjiro Otani, Masato Tanaka, and then last night with Tetsuhito uh, Taka, Takaiwa, pardon me if I'm mangling the pronunciation, and Nahiro uh, Hashikawa, he decided that he needed everyone he could for this weekend's important shows. Jason the Legend was supposed to be my replacement for the weekend shows, but we were told this morning that he will not be able to make it to Japan until October 19th. I am very upset that I cannot make this weekend's Ring of Honor shows. I was looking forward to having my first Ring of Honor world title match with Samoa Joe and getting back to the Midwest for the first time in way too long. But Zero One is where my contract is written and I have to listen and respect my boss. I just wish the notice would have been much sooner. I want to publicly apologize to Gabe and Carrie Silken and also to the whole locker room. In addition to all of the great Ring of Honor fans that were coming this weekend, I will no doubt 100% be at the Ring of Honor show in Philadelphia on December 26th and hope to return to Ring of Honor even sooner if possible. Once again, from the bottom of my heart, I am sorry. And he, in fact, was on the December 26th show. And he, in fact, was sorry. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so yeah i mean it sounds like it was out of his hands this wasn't like some of the other sometimes no shows this sounds like very much like just he got told like no we need you here and like he said like steve carino's main wrestling job at this point was he was like a worked in the office and was a major like the top foreigner in zero one when they were a bigger promotion than they, uh, than they are today i believe they just announced recently that they were either in financial trouble or going out of business although they might have been saved i i didn't quite look into it enough, but yeah, so completely another thing that completely changed this card. And then finally, Matt, before we get into the show itself, one thing we always love is when listeners have live thoughts or little things that maybe we wouldn't know. And um, a listener has done this before, a great listener, Michael Laney. He wrote in an email to us at through the years at gmail.com, T H R O H, if you want to do the same. And he wrote a few interesting live report notes from this show. He wrote, the thing that stands out to me the most about this show is that originally it was supposed to be Steve Carino in the main event six-man tag. I talked to a guy in line that was attending his first Ring of Honor show because he was a Carino fan. He also knew that he heard one half of the Pitbulls was going to be there and was thinking he was going to see Gary Wolf in action as well. He was bummed when I broke the news to him, but I think the guy enjoyed the show since I would see him at all the Dayton Ring of Honor shows for a few years thereafter. Anyways, you may find this to be incorrect when doing your research, but if memory serves me correctly, Krino's replacement in the six-man tag was a mystery heading into the show. During the show itself, there was no announcement at all about who the mystery man was going to be, and the reveal was just Jimmy Jacobs coming out with the rest of the team like it was no big deal, and I can confirm, I think he, Michael Laney is right on about that. I think it was a mystery, and then it was just like, hey, it's Jimmy Jacobs pulling double duty. And I can Uh, confirm it was no big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Michael continues in the email. From the merch side of things, I recall World Title Classic as being the most recent DVD release that was available. I also purchased Volume 1, Issue 1 of the Ring of Honor magazine, which featured the headline, Samoa Joe's Title Reign in Jeopardy? Along with such compelling articles as John Walters Brings It Home, New Tag Champs Rocky Romero and Ricky Reyes, plus noted features on Generation Next and Jay Lethal. And before I get into the end of his email, I should note that you were talking to him through email and you got him to send screen caps of this magazine 
magazine, and it looks amazing. I had no idea Ring of Honor had a magazine, and certainly not as early as like late 2004. Uh, and this thing, I, I, I kind of wish we had a copy of it. Yeah, this thing uh, looks amazing. Well, he gave us the closest thing to a copy. Where he gave us just the huge, um, you know, just like tons of uh, pictures from it. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'd be very surprised if I found out there was more than one issue of this. But at the same time, I'm very surprised that there's one issue of this. So I don't. So I may just be. Maybe there's like twenty. I don't know. But um, it, they, you know, they had a whole list of like they had a whole table of contents. They, all, I'm looking at these pictures right now. They had a whole list of like. The publisher, it was C&T Publishing, for the record. Um, <laughs> editor, a photo editor. They, they, you know, it was, it, they had looked like they had some like col- they color photos. They had um, an article about Generation Next. Um, all about Ricky, all about Jay Lethal, all about Dunn and Marcos. A list of great matches with like write ups and stuff. Um, some nice photos of the wrestlers. It was uh, good stuff. Yeah, I remember talking to you after like he showed us this, and I was thinking like the only reason I could think of having a magazine this early—I mean, maybe the opportunity just fell in their hands—but like um, if I remember correctly, I think Gabe's early ECW tenure was started by like helping do to do the program. I might be wrong on that, but I think I remember doing the Feinstein episode, like learning that like that was part of his early days of ECW was working with like creating the programs and stuff for ECW. Yeah, so, like like a newsletter almost, right? Yeah, so I, I don't know how much or if he was involved with the mag- this magazine at all, but definitely, you know, I could see him at least being kind of open to the idea of a magazine being a good thing for an up-and-coming indie because that's kind of his roots was, yeah. you know, working on one of them. For ECW, so early on, so um, yeah, I have to say they didn't they didn't get super creative with it. Like the all about Jay Lethal part is just like this was his first match. This was a big <laughs> match that he won. He used to be in Special K. He uh, here's his record. <laughs> like you know, like it wasn't like they like it's not like the, it wasn't like those like old WWF or like PWI profiles where they added all these like character flourishes and stuff. Yeah, or like here's I, what Jay Lethal does on a on a day off. You know, it wasn't anything like that. We needed them to go after Magstar and have someone like pr- write an article about Jay Lethal, like pretending to be his mom. Yeah, like, like just yeah, Jay like Lethal fake, mom, five fake, things you never knew. Yeah, fake interviews, the the um, the rockinest things that Dunn and Marcos have ever done. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Um, then you could read it on Joe versus the World. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, going back, so the end of Michael Laney's email, and this is the part, I mean, I like this whole email. Again, anyone that, if you have any of these personal anecdotes, I can never guarantee we'll read them, but it, like, I always love reading, the, hearing the stuff, but, um, Michael ends. I, I just love this part. Um, my biggest personal memory from the show was my brother's interaction with homicide. My brother was eight years old at the time and was front row wearing a backwards bandana because he was trying to look cool like his favorites, the Rottweilers. Homicide saw my brother, rubbed his head, grinned, and told him that he looked cute. I always thought it was funny to see something that seemed so out of character for homicide. And I don't think that makes the DVD, probably for obvious reasons, but I just love – that like homicide when he was trying so hard to get heel heat during this era, like broke character and was like, "Hey, you cute little kid, like you little eight year old, like that is just such a that is just like, I those are the kind of things that just make me think, you know what, indie wrestling's pretty cool sometimes, like just stuff like that. Well, you know, a true traditionalist would be like, no, you're supposed to be mean to the children, <laughs> heels. If Jim Cornette had cared about Ring of Honor at this time, he'd be doing like a 20-minute podcast segment talking about how Homicide was destroying the business by uh, 
telling an eight-year-old that he looked cute. He was just on. He was just on the previous ROH show. Yeah, but I don't think he was interested. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, So finally, we can get to the show proper. We open backstage on. Boy, this took me back, Matt. Um, Dave Prezak with just it's the the bleach blonde like dye job that I feel like every third person in 2004 had. Uh, David Dave Prezak is sporting it. He walks over to Homicide and Rocky Romero. He tells them he's going to need to do promos with them after a few matches into the car. He's going to need to record them with them. Uh, Homicide screams at him to get the fuck out of there. And Matt, that's the entire segment. It's like 30 seconds. I don't think we see Dave Prezak again until intermission. And he doesn't do the interviews with Homicide and Rocky Romero. This has no payoff. It's just... It's just character building. Homicide and Rocky Romero are not happy, and that's all we need to know. Yeah. Elsewhere backstage, Matt Stryker says he's back where they appreciate wrestling, not like on the East Coast where they want you to bounce off the walls and kill yourself. Uh, Stryker then says he's going to win the four-way tonight, and he says the fans in the East are number one in his book. And as he says that, he holds up a million a middle finger, and it's probably he holds not up un- a million fingers. <laughs> That's Matt <laughs> Stryker's new gimmick: the man of many fingers. <laughs> um, I love. He um, holds it right in the middle, and he probably didn't intentionally do this, but it's, like, perfectly between his, like, unibrow. It's, like, dead center, <laughs> right covering his nose. It, give, him a, give him a little bit perfect. of credit. Maybe he did know how to do that. If perfectly. so, that, that if so, honestly, he's had a few good matches. Maybe one of the best moments of Fat Strikers Ring of Honor career, if that was intentional. <laughs> and, and I'm not being necessarily being glib, even though I really enjoyed that. Um Next, we go live to In the Building, where CM Punk makes his entrance to his music. He gets a nice pop on commentary. Uh, Gabe and Mark Nolte welcome us to Ring of Honor's historic 50th show. Uh, Punk grabs a mic in the ring. By the way, before, gets- you, before you go on, this is – I mean, I, just as someone who's watched all these shows, this was notable because it was an unusual production technique for them. Usually, ROH in this era would not speak over entrances ever at all. And if they were going to say, like, welcome to the show, it would be once the match starts. This time they did it during Punk's entrance, and I wasn't sure why. Like, was it incorrectly placed? Like, it was just – it was bizarre to me because it just was so out of line with their usual approach. And whenever, you know, whenever that happens, it's noticeable. I mean, it's not a big deal, but just like since I'm – since we're microanalyzing these shows, that stood out to me. Yeah, and when you watch 50 shows, like – like you said, I literally – there may have been one, but if so I can't remember them ever starting a show where like the commentary talked before like the first match had the bell ring. In the, er- in the early days, they would. But starting by – definitely by 2003, they, were, they, went to, they went to the mode of like there's entrances and then we talk over the matches and that's it. And sometimes yeah. they would talk over promos, I guess, if the promos were bad or hard to hear. <laughs> Yeah, it was not like a U.S. TV style presentation where it's like the show opens and the second like you're in the building, the commentators are like welcoming you to the show like they they and and talking about like what you're going to see tonight. It's just, yeah, like the welcome starts when the match first match starts. But um, going to this segment, um, Punk grabs the mic. He gets a chant before he even says a word. He's really over. You, I think. The the last time they're being there, having the sixty minute Joe Punk match, he Punk seems like noticeably more over there in Dayton now because of the, uh, since the last show. Um, 
Punk says this is the 50th Ring of Honor show, and while he'd like to think he's left his mark on Ring of Honor shows with a lot of different moments he's proud of, there's one moment he isn't proud of, and then Punk goes into mentioning that the last time he was here in Dayton, he and Samoa Joe went to a 60-minute draw. That Just mentioning that gets another nice pop from the local fans. But then Punk talks about he's still angry at Homicide for ruining what should have been a special night that night by causing a scene after that match for people that don't remember. At the end of that match, the crowd was chanting for five more minutes. And Homicide, who was just early on in his new heel run, comes in. He steals the uh, fancy, and by fancy, I mean ugly, new Ring of Honor title that uh, Joe had been presented by Les Thatcher right before the start of the match. He basically just shits on everything and and prevents them from doing five more minutes by just being an asshole. So uh, Punk is still mad about that. Punk says he needs momentum heading into his rematch with Samoa Joe tomorrow night in Chicago. So he's going to work twice tonight. He says the, the, the 51st show in, in Ring of Honor history will be in his hometown tomorrow, and that will crown a new Ring of Honor world champion. And then Punk ends the promo by demanding Homicide come out, cue Homicide's music, cue Homicide coming out to the ring with Rocky Romero, cue the match, which is Homicide with Rocky Romero defeated CM Punk via pinball in 17 minutes, 15 seconds after a chair shot followed by a lariat to the back of the head. Um, Matt, this is... Uh, Punk and Homicide's third match in Ring of Honor against each other. And I believe this is probably, I think, their last match in Ring of Honor against each other. The first one was at Ring of Round Robin Challenge 2 in 2003, which I think, at least I remember being like a good, not great match that was a real fast sprint. Then I remember their next match was, I think, at uh, the, the last, last stand last hand, early yeah. in 2004. And I think, at least, again, I remember... Kind of not as good as that, a little bit slower, but not in a good way, kind of disappointing. What did you think about kind of the third match of, I wouldn't necessarily call it a trilogy, but I mean, I guess it's three matches. What did you think about this third match we're getting from Punk and Homicide here in Ring of Honor? Um, this is, uh, you know, we talk about, you know, it's always fun to discover hidden gems. You know, it's hard, it's, it's weird to say that it's match between two of the biggest stars in ROH history is a hidden gem, but it's not like anyone talks about this match. And I would say it was probably the, you know, I would almost go as far as to say it was the best opener ROH has ever had ever done until this point, as far as an opening match. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think back to the good opening matches they've done. There was um, Brian Danielson against Christopher Daniels from the Round Robin Challenge in 2002. There was Brian Danielson against Jay Briscoe from uh, Final Battle 2003. There was a very well-liked... Um, um, Death Before Dishonor 2, uh, Chad Collier, Rocky Romero match that I didn't think was that special. This match was really, really, really good. Um, it, it, in some ways, it was like um, it was like their first match in that they just like went for it, like they didn't really hold back. And um, the difference between this match and that match is that this match had a flow, it was less sloppy, it was longer, so they told more of a story. It wasn't just like big move, big move, big move. Although they did do a lot of big moves, and they really kept at quite a pace. You know, they started off throwing bombs. Actually, it started off with probably the uh, the worst <laughs> spot of the match, which was a back body drop by Punk that looked like the homicide almost wouldn't get over, but he did. From that moment on, it was just like they were on fire. Um, you know, the early part of the match was big moves, like uh, CM Punk um, suplexing Homicide from the crowd over the guardrail onto a chair. 
then um, that you know homicide cell in his back. You know, Punk hits a big power bomb in Zagiri, face wash. He does a dive onto Romero and Homicide because remember Julia Smokes is not there. Um, you know, just there's just lots of big moves. Punk even gets Homicide in a torture rack at one point, but he breaks it up because Romero is blocking the ref, and that kind of lets uh, Homicide attack Punk's knee and take him to the floor. And then Homicide starts working on Punk's neck, and that kind of gives a story to the match. You know, Romero still gets involved a little bit more. Um, at one point, um, Homicide pokes CM Punk's eyes, because that is something that ROH does in every match now. Um, and then after he does it, he, like, points to his head, like, you know, like the wrestler intelligence <laughs> spot. Like, I poked him in the eye. Smart. And Nolte actually and Nolte actually was sarcastically was like, oh, yeah, it takes a lot of intelligence. Einstein used to use that move. And I actually enjoyed that. I actually enjoyed Nolte making fun of the idea that it was really clever to poke someone in the eyes. Um, but, what, you know, once, once you know, that happened, we were getting – when we got toward the finish, you know, there were a lot of really good spots. Um, Punk did an overhead belly-to-belly for two. Then he blocked a pile driver, got a backslide. Um, Homicide then hit the pile driver, but Punk's arm was under the ropes. Punk blocked the top rope Rana and then hit a, like a, a Pepsi twist, but like a really high-impact one, like way like more intense than usual for two. Homicide hit an ace crusher for two. Punk escaped the cop killer, actually went for one of his own, but Homicide blocked it, and Romero got up on the apron to distract the ref so Homicide could grab the bell and cheap shot Punk with it. And Punk kicked out um, with, to a huge pop. I have to say, if you want a really big, a big um, pop in a match, have someone kick out of a, a belt shot. <laughs> it, it, you really can't go wrong with that. It was the tag team title belt, for the record. Um, that was the belt that was there. Um, um, so then Homicide went for a Pepsi plunge, but Punk fought out and went for one of his own. But Romero distracted again, and Punk went and, like, decked him. And Homicide then hit Punk in the back of the neck with a chair. Then he hit the lariat and got the pin. And, like, I wrote down, like, they had me. Even I was mad about that ending. Like, I was like, oh, man, those cheaters. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, this was, it was, this was definitely an indie wrestling match. You know, it was like lots of big moves, very fast paced, all action. But it told a good story, I think, with CM Punk and his neck and, you know, getting screwed over by the Rottweilers cheating. And the CM Punk neck stuff played into the main event also. So I thought this was a damn good match. I, I'm, I'm, I was racking my brain trying to think of an opener up until this point that I like better than this match, and I can't think of one. I think the show peaked here, uh, which is the downside of it. But this was a really, really, really good match. I would put this on the level in terms of openers of like the only one I would put on this level I would say is like uh, the Daniels Danielson Daniels one from uh, Round Robin Challenge. I think that was another one where I would kind of put that in that same round where I would call this match a banger, Matt. Uh, I think that that's the best word to describe it. But, like, it's easily the best of the three matches they've had in Ring of Honor. And it's like a better version of the Round Robin Challenge 2-1 because that one was another one where they were keeping a really good pace right from the start and a lot of action. But, uh, like, in trying to quantify how much I enjoy this match, like, I wouldn't say it's, like – you absolutely have to go out of your way to see it. But I would say it's like three and three quarter, four star like opener. That's just really satisfying. And I think the best way to describe it for me is like a lot of wrestling matches. And this is a good thing. You know, 
there's peaks and valleys or like if you're going to rate your enjoyment or the intensity of a match, it might start at like a four and go up to a nine and then go down to a seven and then peak at the 10 if it's really great or, or it might whatever, you know, stuff like that. But how I would describe this match is it basically right from the bell, it's like an eight out of 10 and it just stays at an eight out of 10 for 17 straight minutes. Like it's just consistently like a very good pace, consistent action. Like it just never lets up. And it's just really cool to see a match like that where it's not like I think if you are just weaned on like modern wrestling, like indies and AEW and stuff like that, where you'd be going, well, this isn't quite as fast as there, but it's just they never really take a break. They never really slow it down. And it's just like you said, it's not a super heavy story, but homicides um, working of the neck. It does have a payoff. And so much of his offense is just naturally predisposed to always telling the next story. And um, he hits a pile driver on in this match on CM Punk where like the crowd like groans because it looks like he killed CM Punk. And it's just a, a really good like action heavy, frenetic, fast paced match. And another interesting thing I think that you kind of touched on is like. I was looking back at my reviews of their first two matches and both times I was like, oh, these matches are kind of botchy. And you mentioned that point early on where in this match where like Punk is going for a back body drop and it looks like Homicide isn't going to get over and like they just kind of muscle their way through. And there was a few spots on this in this match where it looked like there was going to be a botch, like especially from Punk, like I think like a gut wrench suplex or something where it looks like he might be having trouble. But every time it's like this was just a night where like he was they were on and it was like, nope. Like, I'm not going to screw up tonight because even moments where it looked like, oh, this could go wrong. Like, it seemed like every time they just kind of gutted it through and pulled off. There is one botch kind of where it looked like Punk was going for a drop kick and he just kind of mistimed it. But to Homicide's credit, he just like jumps on Punk immediately to the point where it's almost hard to tell it's a botch completely. And, um, yeah, I, I just... I, and I really liked, like you mentioned, I liked that they did the interference twice. Like, I liked that they went to the gimmick belt shot, which that entire crowd bought as the finish and got a really big near fall out of it. And then they went back to the chair. Because a, a lot of times, sometimes that would seem like overkill, but I think they got like a really huge, cool near fall that they wouldn't have gotten if they didn't do that first. And yeah just really good opener like yeah and when you say that cm punk uh, and homicide were were on on this night i'm going to give you a spoiler alert cm punk was on this entire weekend (laughs) oh yeah i hear he does a good match the next night maybe i don't know (laughs) also can we matt can we just talk about like i think one thing i would always say about cm punk is he's kind of has like an audacity to him. Like sometimes he he attempts moves that he can't quite pull off, but also sometimes it's really pays off for him. Like people always said, he's a really self-confident guy in his own abilities. Like there's an audacity to see him punk being like, he knows he's working the next night doing a 60 minute draw and he's working double duty on this night. And on this match, like he's giving pretty much, I would describe like maybe if they were in the main event spot on, on this show, homicide and punk would have done like an extra minute or two of near falls but for the most part i would describe like the effort level they give in this match like a main event level effort level it didn't feel like they were holding much back or giving you that much of a different match than if this was last on the card and he's doing this plus another match before he does a 60 minute match minute match the next night like yeah this was this was this was the weekend of cm punk i will yeah for sure this is akin to like i think 
there's a match on the first anniversary show we talked about where it's just like a short undercard match and it's not that long. But then I think we learned that I think it was like the night before he had done the 93 minute match with Chris Hero and IWA Mid South. Like it just seems like he was a guy at this point where he's like, yeah, I'll, I'm just going to go out there and wrestle my ass off. Like I don't care what I'm doing the next night. I'm going to do it all over again the next night and just not, I'm not saying not pacing himself, but kind of just, Again, the I just feel like the audacity he had where he was just like, I can pull it off. I, I can do that much. And a lot of times he actually could. You know, this weekend he certainly does, like you said. Like, he can do it. Yep. Um, a couple other quick notes from this. Homicide did come out with the belt that he stole from Samoa Joe, I guess because they needed it for the finish. But it's funny because oh, – Oh, that was the belt he hit him with. You're right. I, I thought it was a tag title belt. My mistake. Yeah, I, I think that must because it feels like they kind of forgot about that belt for a long time. And maybe they also brought back on this night also because the show he stole it on was Dayton. And we talked about the other show recent on another show recently about how Gabe was often like when he was at his best, good at kind of like booking, not just show to show, but like city to city. So it's kind of like even if you just were there live for the last Dayton show. He's kind of still remembering what was on the last Dayton show with, oh, he stole the belt, so the belt's going to come into play on this Dayton show, even if that belt didn't come into play on a lot of the other Ring of Honor shows in other cities between the last Dayton show and this Dayton show. Um, Matt, I think also this is um, Bobby Cruz's first Ring of Honor show as the regular ring announcer. He, of course, had appeared before. Uh, when Steve Kreer was doing the ring personal ring announcer gimmick, and he might have even done spot duty during a show when Steven and D'Angelo's couldn't make it. I'm, I don't remember. Yeah, I feel but like there th- might have been one other show, but I, I can't say that for sure. But it was definitely but, noticeable that he was the guy here. Yeah, and I, I just checked the other shows just to make sure. But yeah, this is from this point on, he is the he has replaced Steven D'Angelo's. He is the regular ring announcer for Ring of Honor. Oh, so. the, oh okay, got you. Okay, so, oh, I see what you're saying. So Steven D'Angelis does not announce, ring announce their shows anymore after this. Yeah, I, I watched the rest of the show. I just quickly jumped to the, look, taking a pee at the rest of the shows through the end of the year. And yeah, it's Bobby Cruz for all of them. So I think it's safe to assume this is the moment that, like, Wow. Uh, I don't know why, but Steven DeAngelis is probably done in Ring of Honor at this point in the history. Well, so this ring ROH Gold marks another milestone because <laughs> the dude is still the ring announcer of ROH. <laughs> yeah, it makes it easy for him to remember, like, oh, it's the I started the 50th show as a regular. And yeah. um, a couple other things just looking at quickly. Uh, I guess we should also mention – sometimes I like to mention this when I notice it. I don't always check. This is one of those matches that is available legally for free on the Ring of Honor official YouTube channel. Strangely enough though, I think it was uploaded like 12 years ago and it's posted in two parts in really shockingly bad video quality. Like worse than the quality you would get from a torrented file. And uh, But it is there for free if you want to watch legally and easily just by – probably entering Homicide CM Punk Ring of Honor into YouTube. You can see it, and it's, it's worth watching. Definitely for free. Absolutely worth watching this match. And finally, Matt, one little moment I really liked on commentary. You mentioned the uh, Einstein line from Nolte. Uh, Nolte said during, at one point during this match, he goes, sometimes your courage overrules your intelligence, and we've all been guilty of that at one time or another. And I just wrote in my notes, I have never been guilty of that ever in my life. Like I've, <laughs> I am a coward, Matt. I have never been, I've never been like, boy, my courage really overruled my intelligence today. But even, even as a kid, you never did anything like stupidly brave. 
I was basically, I would have willingly have been the boy in the plastic bubble if they had let me. Like, if they had made a sequel to that movie that was about a kid being like his parents begging him to leave the bubble, like that would have been that would have been perfect for my story. I was a very conscientious kid, I'll say. But um, I, I, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty. I play. I'm a pretty cautious guy. Um, but there have definitely been a couple moments in my life where I was like, man, that was stupid. <laughs> Um, after the match homicide his mouth disgustingly caked with spit uh, looks into the camera holding the stolen Samoa Joe title belt and he says he's the real champ bitch Uh, Rocky Romero gets on the mic and he tells Punk to not even worry about tomorrow because tonight he's winning the Ring of Honor world title from Samoa Joe he and homicide pose to a mix of booze and cheers oh yeah the other thing I forgot to mention that Nolte brought this up too um Homicide is 3-0 and against CM Punk and Ring of Honor at this point after winning this match. And I don't think, you know, Punk gets his win, like, one win back in Ring of Honor over him, let alone three. So it's just kind of a, they never really had, like, <clears throat> an extended feud. And, 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 and they never had a match in, like, a real main event slot either. This would probably be the highest profile match they've had. Yeah, and another interesting thing, we were, you were talking about the differences of, of the presentation of Ring of Honor in this show. Very rare you get a Ring of Honor show where maybe only this show where you basically get the main event going on first. Like this is clearly far and away like the highest profile match and what um, probably we don't, we'll probably argue the best match on the entire show. And obviously you go, well, why would they do it first? But I think – I don't know this for a fact, but the obvious answer seems to be – Knowing that the main event um, also has Punk in it, and it's a babyface win in the main event, and this is a babyface loss due to cheating, I have to assume they just thought, if we're going to do these matches, we got to do one at the start, one at the end, because Punk's doing double duty, and we should end with the one that's the happy ending. So that's my only assumption there. But also, when do they ever have a main event match that's just a singles match between two guys, not for a title, without any gimmicks, and without it being a blow-off of a feud? Yeah, I mean, they did a very little bit of, like, Homicide and Punk kind of crossing paths, you know, where they had um, Carino coming in during – where he came back during Glory by Honor 3 and, you know, Punk kind of getting in the middle of, of Homicide and Carino. And they had, of course, um, the Scramble Cage Melee, the three-way where it was um, Homicide, Joe, and Punk for that incredible title. Who gets to be the icon of Ring of Honor? I, by the way, something that has never referenced again, I, I should note, in the shows that have happened since. Um, and Homicide, you know, stole Punk's pin over Joe. So, like, it's not a feud, but there are at least a couple little things you can drag into the recent history. But, yeah, not a feud at all. Nothing, um, nothing that would ever make them book it as a main event. I think under a normal circumstance, you could see this match going like second from the top, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is a, would be like a perfect like and also match. You know, like yeah. here's the big main event, and here's you also get this too. And, you know, not a big feud, but two big names probably gonna have a good match. Here you go, but. We cut to backstage where Chad Collier tells us that the last time they were here in Dayton, the most he had the most embarrassing moment of his career. He tapped out to Jay Lethal in a four way. In a four way, 
Chad says he's going to give Jay a lesson of his life. That's that's the phrase he used. And he's going to make him tap because he has the precision, precision of a physician. Uh, Chad keeps almost stumbling over his words, but just kind of barreling through with this weird charisma he has. He says he's going to make Jay get plastic surgery on his ugly face. And then he tells the camera, make sure Jay sees this promo. I just wrote in my notes, Matt, this was simultaneously great and terrible. Yeah, this is actually oh. almost like a famous promo. Like I've heard people make fun of this for a long time. And even Gabe was like, how about that promo? <laughs> like when, when he, when he comes out later, like this is a notably bad, so bad it's good promo for sure. Chad Collier is quite a character on these promos, which makes it interesting that he's like really not one in his matches. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't really have much personality in the ring, but he has a lot on the promos. It do, the, the, the personality is not totally sensical and his delivery is not like he says words wrong, but, um, <laughs> but he sure does have personality on the promos. Yeah. He has a lot of charisma and it's funny too, because like the, the character or just the, what he, pres- I don't even know if it's a character, what he presents in promos is like a completely different image than his wrestling in ring image. Because in ring, you know, he's like Chad Collier, like a technical wizard, very serious, studious guy, you know, D- trained D- by D- the Malenko. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then, you know, on the promise, he's just like this sometimes semi-coherent, like just full of piss and vinegar, like going to sock you in the face kind of goofball. And it's like completely at odds with like how he wrestles. But there, there's some other problems with Chad Collier that I guess yeah, we'll get we'll, to later. Yeah, there, there, there's, there's some definitely problematic Chad Collier stuff we it, will address. It's not all fun and games with Chad Collier. Yeah, and but first we get our second match on the show. Matt Seidel defeats Trent Acid via pinfall in eight minutes twenty three seconds using a forward rolling cradle. Um, uh, PW Insider they had a live report from a man I always like to give credit named Clint Copenhaver. He wrote a little note on this match where he goes, "The crowd seemed unfamiliar with Acid and could not figure out why he got a five minute intro, and also that Trent Acid has no more Midnight Express music." Luckily, we did not see very much if at any of the intro. I don't know what he did, but Matt, I would say the story of this match isn't actually the match. It's the commentary. Uh, rarely, if ever, have we heard Ring of Honor commentary bury a wrestler this openly and harshly during a match. Most of this match, I mean, eventually they do kind of soft walk back a little bit and go, well, he's done some good stuff. But a lot of this match is Gabe, especially, and Mark Nolte, like, shitting on Trent Acid, talking about how his gear is ugly, how he doesn't take take things seriously, how he has potential, but, like, they even worked his booking into it recently, like, oh, he was was the four-way king of the multi-man matches, but not anymore. He lost the last one. And they just... Like, I was shocked how much they shit on Trent Acid. And yes, his gear, I mean, his gear wasn't that much worse than it normally is. It was like a a ratty t-shirt with the arms torn off and like the jorts and a big, I guess the ugliest thing would be a white rag, a white towel hanging out of the back pocket of the jorts. And he had like dirty shoes, but they, um, they really shit on to the point where it was like, knowing that Matt Seidel wins this and, it, you know, this was early on for Matt Seidel, I was starting to think like, you're kind of hurting Matt Seidel's win here because it's going to the – by the end of the match, it feels less like, oh, Matt Seidel beat a former Ring of Honor tag champ and a prominent name on the indies and more like, boy, Matt Seidel beat a guy who's on his way out of Ring of Honor and who's 
apparently hitting hard times. And uh, as far as the match itself, I was kind of distracted by all the commentary, but it it was okay. Like it wasn't. It was less of a match and more just here's some big spots here or there. Uh, I think one thing Trent Acid does, he did some comedy early on, like kind of just goofing on Matt Seidel and psyching him out. And Trent Acid is a guy where I feel like sometimes he he has this shtick where he's kind of acting like he doesn't he isn't taking wrestling seriously. And sometimes it works and sometimes it borders on like that he just legitimately isn't taking wrestling seriously. And I felt like this kind of walked the line on, on that. And there were a few big spots and then they kind of just went to Matt Seidel getting the win from, you know, a quick pin. But the two for a match that was mostly just here's a few nice spots. There were two spots I thought were really cool. One was, um, uh, Trent acid catching uh, a moonsault on the outside off the guard post. I mean, guardrail from Seidel. And then he ran from like one side of the ring to the other to power slam him into a barricade which i thought looked really cool trent acid did and then matt seidel just hits it absolutely gorgeous later in the match uh, a quebrada where he does like a twist like a rotation of his body in the middle of it but for the most part this was all i remember from this match was those two cool spots and just trent acid getting buried six feet under yeah, I um, I think I took the commentary a little bit different from you in that my, I just took it as like they were trying to get over Trinacid's character um, as opposed to them being genuine. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, that's how I took it. You know, rather than them genuinely like shitting on Trinacid, the person, um, um, you know, just that his character was that he was unfocused, that he was dirty, that he needs to get serious again, and that's causing him wins and stuff like that. You know, I guess in wrestling, you know, maybe I should always assume that, like, there's always truth behind the lies. I don't know. Because um, you are right that he stops getting booking soon. But, you know, I thought his performance in the match was pretty decent. You know, like you said about the not taking stuff seriously. But, you know, this match, it did play into a story of him not taking things seriously. And like you said, the, the high spots were good. There wasn't much in between them. But there was some good – there were some good high spots. Um but you're right, they definitely, if they were trying to get over that Acid was not, his head wasn't in the game, they did lay it on a little bit thick. Um, there was some other funny comedy stuff, though. Like, like I wrote, like, the minute at the beginning of the match when Gabe calls Daisy Hayes beautiful and lovely, I immediately had my guard up. Like, oh shit, what's he going <laughs> to say now? Um, um, but, like, and then later on in the match, um, Nolte actually called Gabe out on it, and he's like... Um, uh, and Gabe is like, you got to watch out for those lawsuits. Um, uh, <laughs> um, meanwhile, um, some of the stuff that they say about um, about Acid, like Nolte says, there ought to be a rule. You should dress better than the fans, which I think you mentioned. But that when Gabe says that Acid looks like he wandered out of a homeless shelter, I was thinking like even that you really couldn't say in 2020. Like I think that would even be pretty problematic, right? Like insulting someone by saying they look homeless. I feel yeah. like I feel like that's I mean- yeah. I'm not, I'm not – you know what, Matt? The tough thing for me is the bar for what – for problematic things in early Ring of Honor is so high that I kind of get numb to the point where I – when you say stuff like that, like my gut reaction is, oh, that's not that bad, is it? And then my my second reaction is, oh, god, like have I grown numb from watching well, this stuff? Like, I feel like in 2004, it probably was not considered bad. Like I, I'm just saying like now, I feel like yeah. where, you, where you're like shaming someone because of poverty, you know? Like I, I feel like that's – be looked at a little bit differently, but I thought Seidel had a good performance here. 
Um, but you're right. It was just a totally a bunch of spots. The ones that you mentioned were, were cool. And there was not much in between. But it wasn't a long match. So I think if you're watching the whole show, you don't have to skip this. It's, it's fine. Yeah, and you might be right, actually. Maybe maybe I'm completely misinterpreting this, and the commentary was more putting over a character. I guess why I'm judging it that way maybe is because just knowing the results and knowing that Trent Acid basically gets booked through the end of the year, and then that's it, and he doesn't get booked in anything of any importance. And I think he beats a member of Special K on the next show the next night, but after that, he doesn't win another match like... It definitely feels like he's kind of getting the Matt Stryker treatment where you can tell that basically after the Joe Matt title shot where he gets injured, it feels like they gave up on him. You know, there, there are certain guys in Ring of Honor throughout its history where you can tell basically like there's a very distinct line, a moment in time where they're like, well, we tried. We're, we're kind of cutting bait here. And it feels like they hit that for Trent Hassan a little while ago. And now we're just kind of seeing the string play out here with him. Like even now, you know, you know, Trent acid in 2003, he felt like a guy who had potential in ring of honor, who felt like kind of a hot overact. And now he's second from the bottom, putting over the next, you know, big guy, Matt Seidel. He's the next hot prospect. Yeah. Um, although at the time they didn't even treat Matt Seidel like a hot prospect. Like he had barely no. been on the shows. He was just like a guy and he won this match. So I guess this is how he becomes the next hot prospect. And even this match, like, he doesn't get, like, a huge dominant win. It, it's kind of he reverses uh, acid attempt at his finisher into a pinning predicament and gets the three. It's it's not like, oh, he just destroyed Trent Acid. It's like, well, they had went back and forth, and he kind of made one good move and got through it. But um, Matt Seidel will do all right in wrestling. Uh, we return backstage for a Samoa Joe promo. He puts over Rocky Romero as a guy who could know his weaknesses because he's a guy who came up in the same dojo as him, learning and doing many of the same things. Uh, Joe says the difference between the, them, though, is while Rocky Romero has always been an exceptional wrestler, Joe has always been the best wrestler. And like a lot of Samoa Joe promos, this was very short, but very, I would say, I wouldn't say very sweet. That sound gives a weird implication, <laughs> but it was, it was, a, it was an enjoyable, good to the point, accomplished its goal. Yeah, I, th- I think this is one of Joe's better promos in a while. It was kind of like the promos he was doing like in 2003 or earlier in the year where he was just really getting over that character. And I think he did a good job of explaining why this, this matchup is interesting. Yeah, like, like, because some people probably would know. He doesn't really elaborate on it, but like, they worked, they were both working in that LA uh, New Japan dojo while it was open. So obviously, they would have more of a familiarity with each other, like in a way that Joe probably wouldn't with a lot of his opponents. So that brings us to match three: Delirious and Jimmy Jacobs defeated Special K of Angel Dust and Dixie, who are scored to the ring by Lacey and Becky Bayless, and. Delirious and Jimmy Jacobs win in 12 minutes, 41 seconds, when Jacobs pins Dixie after he hits the Contra code, which is basically the slice bread number two, and to kind of a sit-out landing. Um, Matt, you know, this is another. we had an early performance from uh, Matt Seidel, and usually where Matt Seidel is in this era of, of indies, Delirious is right there too, so an er- another early performance from Delirious. Uh, the gimmick of Special K on a losing streak continues. What did you think about the match? Well, this match had some epic commentary. Like some really oh, okay. some really epic commentary. Oh, <laughs> like yeah, um so like I mean that's the highlight for sure. The match itself, I'll do the match itself first. Um so the match itself I didn't think was so great. 
Um, I thought Jimmy Jacobs looked good. I think he's generally looks very good in these matches. Um, like this is, he's doing double duty tonight, which it seems like apparently the fans watching this did not know at the time. Um, but, um, <laughs> I wonder if like the wrestlers did, but, um, Special K came out and they did not have music nor did they shake hands. So, you know, they must be getting serious. Um, you know, but then there's, you know, a few double team moves, nothing too impressive. They work over Delirious. They're basically playing heels, but heels with more respect. And at this point, Gabe mentions that, like, the legal man will be more of a focus going forward. Um, Gabe even says that, like, everyone was influenced by ECW, but back in the old days, the rules were respected, and then they meant something. So we're going to get back to that in ROH. And Nolte actually blames Mick Foley for the <laughs> for the tag rules being disrespected. I, I don't I don't get it, but... So I so they're so they're paying attention to the tag rules here, um, and deliriously he's coming back. He does a flurry. He misses it in Zaguri, and Dixie cuts him off with a clothesline. Um, uh, Angel does he he hits like a double stomp to the back of Delirious's head, but doesn't really land it too flushly. And then he misses a blockbuster, which I've never really seen someone miss a blockbuster, but he missed it, and that allowed Delirious to hit like an over the shoulder slam, and. Jimmy Jacobs gets a hot tag, and it's a good hot tag. He's a real house of fire. Does a bunch of big moves on Dixie. Angel Dust cuts him off from behind. The announcers say they have to break the losing streak tonight because they look so sharp. You know, and as soon as they say that, you know they're going to lose. Um, so Angel Dust hits like his electric chair driver move on Jacobs. Delirious makes the save. Delirious does a missile drop kick, but Special K double team him. Um, there's like a double team shadows over hell on prettier type move, which was pretty cool. But Dixie pulled Angel out, Angel Dust out for the save, and then there's a kill the ref chant. So already Todd Sinclair's getting shit. Poor guy. Um, I think it was Todd Sinclair. Maybe it was someone else. Um, but um, Dixie hit a rock bottom type move. Oh yeah, it was Sinclair. That's because I wrote Sinclair won't count because he's not the legal man, um, and that allowed Jacobs to come in and go for the contra code. Um, Dixie escaped the first time, but then Jacobs hit him the second time and won the match. Um, I thought the guys worked hard, but I thought only Jacobs really had a good night. Um, I just thought the match was just okay. Maybe even a little bit worse than that. It just didn't, didn't click for me, but Uh, sorry, go ahead. Should we, should we, should we do the match first and then treat the commentary like a separate thing? Because I'm wondering, okay, let, let me just, let me just name one thing from the commentary before that because there's some other stuff on the commentary but here's the one thing at the very beginning of the match gabe says that izzy isn't there and he gets this really serious voice and he's like you know he's not here and i'm just i'm just going to be honest he's on a bad trip right now (laughs) and he said it so seriously i could not stop laughing that was a legit great line i liked from gabe that was you know honestly again how can I not occasionally defend Gabe's commentary where yeah. I will acknowledge tons of flaws, but occasionally when I talk about sometimes he, he swings a lot, sometimes a lot of times he misses, sometimes he gets a hit. That's an example. He got a hit there, Matt. He got a hit. Yeah, like I'm just uh, picturing like Dixie like phoning in sick. It's like I can't come in right now. I got the flu. It's like you don't have the flu. All right, man, I'm, I'm tripping and it's bad. <laughs> like, like, like how does he know that he's on a bad trip? Like how does – I mean I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's – that's the case. So, but yes, the other commentary stuff I'll get to after you uh, give your thoughts. Yeah. I'll set you up right after I go into. I don't have much to say about this because I think this was a really average match. I thought the 
when it started, I thought the initial early myths, there's a bit of delirious comedy, but when Special K start to control, I thought it's kind of boring, but I thought it was one of those matches where the longer it went, it kind of kept getting better to the point where by the end, I was like, that was middle of the road. That was fine. But considering I started thinking, oh, this is kind of boring. Like, that's not bad to end it. Like, oh, that was okay. I That wasn't bad. Um, you mentioned the key spots. I did also really like there was, I think, uh, Special K did a double team, like, back suplex uh, flying top rope leg drop combo move, which I thought looked really cool. Um and like you mentioned, this was this is a something we're going to see multiple times this night. But as Gabe mentioned on commentary, Ring of Honor announced that they were going to start taking the enforcement of the rules and the Code of Honor more strictly again. And so you see multiple matches like this one tonight that seem to have spots specifically put in there to help show that because, yeah, you had Todd Sinclair not counting a big near fall because it wasn't the legal man. And it's interesting because you mentioned how Gabe said that – uh oh, uh, you know, wrestlers don't take the rule seriously because they all grew up on ECW. I think on the last through the years it was, I read a quote from The Observer where Dave said they're going to start taking it more seriously because the thought was too many of these wrestlers aren't paying attention to the rules because they grew up on ECW. So Gabe's saying the exact same thing here. Like that tells you where Dave got that quote from. Because Gabe basically says the exact quote like verbatim during the commentary. Uh, but yeah, Nothing special much for the match. This is a match where really the most interesting things are the commentary and that the start of this trend of the enforcement of the rules. And it's weird, too. I would just say the last little point is um, I feel like one kind of quirk, maybe even a negative of Ring of Honor, although it's not really hurting the enjoyment that much, but it seems like both the rankings and the enforcements of the rules, Ring of Honor kind of treats them like people treat weight loss, where it feels like they'll get really strict about it for a few shows, and then slowly it gets a little more lax, a little more lax, and then after like a six months to a year, they're like, oh shit, and then they'll try like either a new ranking system or in this or in something like this where it's like, we're going to take the rules really seriously, and then you know in a few months it's going to be back to the way it was. Like, it feels like it's something they want to do, but the, they just – they don't want to do it enough to really put their foot down. The, yo, the yo-yo diet of rules. It, it is. And right now, we're, like, we're seeing the start of a period of Ring of Honor where they're like, oh, I ate too much on Christmas. We got we to gotta crack down on these rules again. Ricky Steamboat's getting mad behind the scenes. This is their, 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 this is their 50th show resolution. <laughs> and, I, and part of me wonders that too because like i bring up the steamboat thing i think there was a thing we read a couple shows ago where they were saying like ricky steamboat was trying to impress on the wrestlers like take the rules more seriously you know like follow the rules how it can benefit you i wonder how much of that even might have factored into this of them maybe your steamboat was even telling people like hey you know maybe don't ignore like all the rules maybe pay attention to the legal manner or i know the thing they were talking about on a show or two ago was like steamboat trying to tell the guys like don't you know don't interfere right in front of the ref at least set up a distraction first and we noticed that 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 really long elimination tag they did that was one of the first ring of honor matches in a while where actually there was lots of interference but they actually did make an effort to to uh, distract the ref where in so many of matches in the last few months we were going god like the guys just interfere in front of the ref and like don't even attempt to hide it so it's funny maybe- that they brought in this legend ricky steamboat to be like a disciplinarian to the to the, to the younger wrestlers like hey you gotta you gotta follow the rules man <laughs> 
Gabe's like playing like the divorce diaries. Like, look, Ricky, they won't listen from me, but if you tell them, they'll believe. They'll, they'll listen to you if you do it. They I mean, like, you. That, I mean, that pretty much. I'm just, like, it sounds like that's pretty much literally what what happened. <laughs> yeah, um, I can just imagine Gabe like guy like homicide. If you if you don't start hiding the interference, I'm gonna tell Ricky. It, it, look, Ricky's gonna be a lot angrier about this than I am. You know, you, <laughs> you think I'm the soft one, but wait until wait I'll until Ricky, wait until Ricky Steamboat gets home. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. The main event of this segment, and we've, we've spent too long avoiding it, my fault, but Matt, I, I, I hyped this on Twitter, and I don't think I'm going to I'm going to let you tell it. I think, Matt, this is the most mis- misogynistic comment we have heard in 50 episodes of Through the Years on ring, covering Ring of Honor, and think of the ground that covers. Matt, what the hell did Mark Nolte say during this? Okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I wasn't even, I didn't even see your tweet, so I don't even know which one you're referring to, but here's what I wrote down. Um, so when he's talking about Lacey and Becky and their like kind of feud, he calls it the little cat fight thing. Then he says, there's a reason WCW dropped the women's division. People didn't want to see women wrestle and the women were too much of a pain in the ass in the locker room. That's a Mark Nolte quote. Um, <sighs> so that's I, the line. Yeah, so I said, I wrote, holy moly, this guy is something else. Then he, then he immediately follows with, I'm sorry, did I say all that out loud? And I was like, yes, you did. And now we're judging you on a podcast 16 years later. Bet you didn't see that coming. Um, but, Rest uh, in peace, Mark Nolte. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm sure he's a good guy. I just like, this commentary was wild, man. Um, times, you know, it's, it's, these are the times we live in. We're going to call this stuff out. Um, but okay, so then later on in the match, Gabe says, "Look at Lacey," and Mark goes, "Ah, who cares?" <laughs> and this was this. I mean, Gabe, you get five stars. He, he knocked me out in two thousand four. Gabe goes, <laughs> "I can't even get it out." He goes, "You really have a misogynistic problem there, Mark." <laughs> I could not believe it. It was amazing. You you didn't see the tweet I wrote. This is how bad Mark Nolte's line was. Gabe Sapolsky calls out Mark Nolte for being misogynistic. He literally says right. he, he literally says misogynistic. <laughs> he he got like Gabe to come to Jesus on this. That's how bad he was. Gabe was like, oof. Yeah, oh uh, this, Gabe Gabe's Gabe's awakening was October. <laughs> what did you say? It was fifteenth, two thousand and four. Was that the date? Yeah, the the fiftieth show was momentous. We're learning for a lot of reasons. Yeah, Bobby Cruz's first regular show. Uh, Gabe finally like being pushed too far. The rules coming back. Ooh, um, yeah. Uh, the one other line. No, the one was just definitely the WCW. Like this is why women's wrestling. But like that was the line. But. One other line, um, Mark Nolte at one point refers to Lacey at ringside. He goes, the unnecessary appendages at ringside. He refers to her just as unnecessary appendages. It's just amazing like that we've been noticing this on all the shows and our assumption was just sort of like, uh, 2004, they let a lot go. But realizing that all along Gabe was like thinking the same thing we were sitting next to Mark Nolte, hearing him be like, say these weird things about women – and like to the point where he just had to like straight up call it out, and like Mark Nolte couldn't do anything about it because this is Gabe's show; he can say what he wants. <laughs> and the amazing thing too is think about like two thousand two, two thousand three. We were like, oh, 
Gabe, one of his biggest flaws on commentary is he's doing like the horn dog regressive Jerry Lawler like style drooling over women gimmick. And then not, not like remembering or realizing that Mark Nolte, who I think his reputation, like the way people remember is, oh, the kind of stuffy, serious wrestling historian would be like far like a far darker more cynical breed of misogynism was on the way courtesy of the guy that i only remember as the guy who said like he slapped the mustard off of the hot dog like has any had any person in the history of pro wrestling had any man ever been called out on a wrestling show for being a quote misogynist before i feel like this might be the first time that's ever happened (laughs) Ring of Honor secretly the most progressive. No, I'm not going to say that, but I mean, yeah, I, I can't remember like misogyny being a word uttered. That might be one of the first times that misogyny, the word misogyny in any context has been uttered on a wrestling show. Yeah, I uh, mean, I, I don't know that it's been used since then, but it probably has. But it, I, I can't imagine it was used before then. <laughs> yeah, so just, yeah, like this is two straight matches where I feel like the commentary has been the more interesting thing than the match, which, but granted, this commentary, pretty interesting if you've been following the saga of Ring of Honor commentary for 50 episodes. Yeah, it's true that. Um, after the match, Delirious, he rubs Jimmy's furry boots. Lacey and Becky get into another shouting match, continuing their little feud. Oh, I, 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 sorry, I just have to. I, no, I, I, I love your attention to detail that you know that you that you're noting that Delirious rubbed Jimmy Jacobs' furry boots. I, I honestly, I was like. I, I when when they when the camera stayed on him rubbing the boots, I was starting to type that as I was watching. I was like, "Well, they're holding on this. This is going to go somewhere." <laughs> and then I was just like, "Oh, it's just going to Lacey and Becky getting into a shouting match." But I had already written it down, and also I was just like, "You know what? Not deleting this. Like this going in the recap." Um, but the other, I think I was, I might mention this on the last show, but I think I was intending to, and then I didn't, Matt. I, this is something I think is really interesting, which is how many shows were like. Special K was kind of a hotter act. They were getting pushed. They were even tag team champions. Where Gabe would say on commentary every time, you know, Special K are full of talented guys. If they would just get off the drugs and take things seriously. And what I love is it's not Gabe's intention. It's obviously he's doing it to set like the lacy angle on the split. But like the second he started pushing Special K as um like, look, they're they're shaking hands or they're getting more serious is when they also start doing like a losing streak gimmick. Like unintentionally, the story Gabe is creating is basically once Special K like stop start taking things seriously and stop doing drugs. Like that's when their careers went to shit. Like yeah, they like lost the, they lost all their self esteem. Yeah, like the hidden unintentional message of the storyline is like drugs are good for your wrestling career. Um, anyway, or, or, or is it or is it hidden? <laughs> Ooh. I'll tell you something that was speaking of things that were hidden Matt, that brings us to Chad Collier defeating Jay Lethal via submission in 12 minutes 51 seconds with the Texas Clover Leaf before I get into the match let's talk about something else this is this is quite the eventful show for a B show um, I'm wondering if we should even say this quote out loud <laughs> yeah I want to say this is them saying it, it it's um, so if, if you, this is something you might not even notice, but I had a hard time not noticing it. Okay, so I'll just say this. Let, let's go through the story. Um, a long time ago, so I'm not going to name names, but we got act. Occasionally, we get access to little things that didn't make air. We we saw a take of a promo Chad Collier did for this show, never made air, and why it is is because it's a promo Chad Collier cuts. 
and against Jay Lethal for the match tonight, and he calls Jay Lethal a jungle rat, which pretty horrific statement to call a black person. Let's, I mean, obviously. And if you watch, the clip is not available. We're not going to show it. We're not going to tell you where it came from. But you can instantly hear someone laughing off camera, and you can hear Gabe immediately go cut, because obviously Gabe knows we are not airing that. And uh, obviously they did a retake, and we got the promo that we covered earlier. So I thought, okay, that's the story behind that. It's a weird little thing. Chad Collier's problematic, but whatever. Lots of people in wrestling are problematic. We've addressed that a lot recently. So imagine my surprise when during this intro, the, in the brief clip, they don't show the full entrances of this match or most matches on the show to try and edit it for time. But in the few seconds we see of this Chad Collier entrance, right at the end of it, he turns directly to the camera and says I'm basically to the effect of, like I told you before, he's just a jungle rat. Which is both, <laughs> both horrible because he said it and it made air, but also you don't even have the context because he's referencing a promo they did not air because he said that thing. Like it's which just, just tells you they like they must have just straight up missed it because there was no reason why they couldn't have edited that out. It was not a necessary moment. If they had edited that out, like it would have changed nothing about the DVD. It seems like they just straight up like fast forwarded through the entrance. In the, in the in the editing room, like that—that's what it seems like to me. And it's crazy because it, it's not that loud, but it's clear because it's not into a mic, but it's clearly audible. And he's looking—he looks directly into camera to say. And it's one of those things where if they had edited literally two seconds off of this entrance, they would have cut it out because it's just that one sentence. That's it. And they cut him basically right as the thought ends. And it's just—it was just like. A stunning thing, like knowing, going into the show and knowing about that, that promo, the fact that he, um, that this made air, like just my jaw dropped. And now it's kind of a weird, it's weird to have to then review this match. Um, Matt, I thought this wrestling match was okay. I, I, I thought this was another match where, um, at the start of it, I thought, eh, this is kind of boring. And then by the middle, I thought, well, it's average, but it's got some good points. And by the end, I thought, oh, this is just outright kind of like good, like not super amazing. I um, it tells a simple story where you know Collier going after Jay Lethal's uh, leg, it, you know that pays into the finish. I, at first, I thought this was yet another match where Jay Lethal was really getting semi squashed, but I felt like by the end he had gotten enough offense and big moments that you didn't feel that way. And the thing I really liked about this match was I thought there was detail work that both guys did that I really enjoyed. Like um, Chad Collier, I think his physical, like his body language, is really good. Like there's a moment in the match where it basically sets up the legwork for the rest of the match where um, Jay lethal does a backflip to avoid a move or something. And Chad Collier then just drop kicks the knee and instantly Jay is selling, but instantly, you know, it's like a bigger moment than just that spot. That's going to come into play because Chad Collier like instantly is just like hovering in around him, like an animal about to pounce. And he's like circling around him as Jay's like writhing in pain, trying to get to the knee immediately. And then later on, there's a moment where Collier's working Jay Lethal over, and as best as I can describe, he like snaps on a figure four, like just the way he applies submissions and stuff. There's like an urgency to Chad Collier. Like I know you mentioned earlier, he's not really that charismatic in the ring, but I would argue his body language and just like 
the way he applies moves and stuff, he, he has a bit of an intensity to him that I like. And as for Jay Lethal, what I really liked about him from this match is I thought he did a really good job of selling the knee. I think there was, you know, there's a couple moves where he left his feet where people like go, he shouldn't be doing leaping moves or stuff like that. But what I really liked is he did something, a way of selling the knee that I don't often see where like he was like standing and not putting a lot of weight on his one leg. And there was a couple moments in this match where, you know, normally in matches of a guy selling a limb, especially a leg, they'll sell it when they do a move involving that limb. But there was stuff like where, uh, Collier's running the ropes and, and, and lethal is doing moves to him like clotheslines and stuff. And he's doing the moves like bo- bouncing on one leg, like not putting his full weight on the leg, like moves where he doesn't have to sell the leg. He's selling his leg, which I thought was just, I like that little detail work. And, and I thought it was, uh, really good, but overall the match, I feel like a lot of people look at the live reports afterwards did not like this match and the crowd didn't seem that loud for it. But I thought by the end, it was just kind of a solid, simple match that told a simple story pretty well. Yeah, I would pretty much agree completely. I think both guys sort of seemed like they had something to prove. Um, so they tried pretty hard. It didn't like totally click at every moment, but I thought down the stretch, it was pretty good. I will say I was very surprised that lethal lost. Um, you know, just knowing that Lethal is a guy they're pushing and Collier is a guy they never push. Um, now, I get that Collier, I guess, is going to be in a major-ish match the next night. And maybe that's why. Because, right, yeah. is he? But I don't know. They, they never really push Chad Collier. Um, and Lethal is, you know, on the upswing. Uh, were you surprised with the result of the match? Yeah, because it's weird because Chad Collier feels like for a guy that gets – semi-regular like he doesn't as booked as infrequently as collier is he wins more than you would expect and especially a match like that like if you compare jay lethal right now look at the push nigel mcginnis is get like both nigel mcginnis and jay lethal are technically getting pushes at this time but the way nigel is getting pushed is just like the straight up he's getting big wins and the way lethal is getting pushed is more just like he's samoa joe's young boy who's striking out on his own but he's really getting dominated <laughs> quite a bit yeah but 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 by like having a decent showing against loki and then losing to chad collier doesn't make a lot of sense to me Um, yeah it definitely feels like a step back and again to set up a a a like storyless low-key collier match like did collier really need the win to justify that i mean does that make it like a more exciting match I, i don't yeah i mean i guess it just meant that they thought they had more plans for chad collier than they did um but um, as far as um, some of the other stuff, like there's some there's some commentary stuff in this match. Like at one point, Gabe said he kind of telegraphed the finish because he said at the beginning, if Chad loses, he'll have no future in ROH, which, you know, you were complimenting on uh, Glory by Honor that they were more realistic, where like if Jay Lethal loses to Matt Stryker, he'll be he'll he'll be gone until next spring. This time they were just like, Chad Collier is just gone if he loses this match, yeah. which I thought that was intense. If, I, if anything should have gave him no future, it should have been the racist stuff that he said. Um, <laughs> but um, also Nolte, in, in contrast with, the the woman stuff he was actually woke in this match because he's talking about concussions and he goes concussion is too nice of a term they should call it a brain injury so he was like ahead of his time when it came to taking concussion seriously very behind the times with i guess everything else um but hey points for that mark nolte but yeah the match was just was was had a was okay it was fine it was solid i guess solid would be the best word i could use for it 
I thought Nulty also had, like, uh, for all the crap we give Nulty, rightfully so, uh, you talked about an earlier commentary. I thought there was a genuinely good line he had during this match where on Chad Collier, he says, can we get an English to English subtitles for Chad Collier? <laughs> Which I thought was, like, a legit good line. Good. And, um... Uh, one other spot I forgot to mention that I really liked was at one point Chad, Chad uh, has Jay Lethal on the ring apron, kind of ha- his knees are hanging over, and he's like jerking his knee over the ring apron. And when he does that, Lethal sits up in pain, and so Collier like hits him, and then that puts Lethal's b- like back flat on his back on the mat. So he grabs his knee and jerks it back over there, and it goes. He does that back and forth like four times in a row, like a cartoon. And it's just one of those silly but fun mo- spots that maybe it's a little more comedic like comical than you'd expect to see regularly in ring of honor um and i wrote my notes it's weird to compliment chad collier in the context of what we've talked about but i i always i wrote my notes again here like chad collier continues to be one of the most underrated ring of honor guys of this era where i would describe him as like he doesn't have show stealing matches, but he always has like these solidly fun mid card matches that are always like a little bit better than you expect going in, or at least like you go, oh, every time I see Chad Collier, I'm like, oh yeah, it's Chad Collier, this should be okay, and then every time it's like, oh yeah, that's that's pretty in- enjoyable, like nothing crazy great. Like he always gives you a little bit, he always leaves me like a with a little bit more than I expected going in, um, although. We did not, like you mentioned earlier, the Rocky Romero-Chad Collier match that was sold as like this great, great undercard hidden gem. On rewatch, we definitely did not like that as much as most people. And I thought it was interesting, Gabe, during this match, put over Chad Collier by saying that uh, Rocky Romero versus Collier was one of the most underrated Ring of Honor matches ever, like one of the best openers ever. And he was even, I, I love that Gabe was like, it's getting rave reviews on the Ring of Honor message board, which was true, it was. But I just love how that's like a big selling point. It's like rave reviews on the Ring of Honor message board. Um, yeah, that's about it for this match. So next up, BJ Whitmer, Dan Moff defeat the Carnage crew of DeVito and Loke at 11 minutes, 37 seconds, when Whitmer pins Loke after he and Moff put a garbage can on him and hit the hell out of it with steel chairs. So... Initially, this match ends in seconds in a double DQ when all four men start swinging chairs at each other. So this is another of the matches on the show to help establish that the rules are going to be taken more seriously because how often do you ever see a DQ in Ring of Honor? But it also sets up what we're about to see next because then Mick Foley comes to the ring to a big pop, big Foley chant. Mick says he didn't come all the way to Dayton, Ohio to see a double DQ. He he asks, um, did anyone come to see a double DQ? And if so, raise your hands and and say, I am a gutless pansy. Uh, Mick thinks the crowd wants to see hardcore wrestling. He wants that they want to see these four fighting with no rules, with a ref who knows how to call a hardcore match. Mick then says that man is not Todd Sinclair. He stares him down and Todd Sinclair not having a good night. He's getting picked on. Poor guy. Um, yeah, and so Mick announces that he's the ref for the following hardcore match. Mick then realizes he's not licensed to referee in the state of Ohio, except that he brings, and I love this weird attention to detail, he brings up that he refed a bra and panties match in Cleveland in August of 2001, so that Mick count, counts as him being licensed. Um, Mick then goes to the back, he comes back out with a trash can full of weapons, and then we get the match that we just, I just gave the time for, the actual match. Um, Matt, 
what did you think about the hardcore match we actually got? Is this just showing Mick is right that Ring of Honor is all about Ring of Hardcore? I, I find it very funny that McFoley is implying that if you want to see a double dis- disqualification, that means you have no guts. Like, <laughs> I don't understand the context of that. But anyway, um, yeah, so um, it's uh, just a couple commentary things quick. Gabe says that the feud started, quote, innocently enough at testing the limit and it's gotten more violent. So I just love the idea of a wrestling feud starting very innocently. Like, I don't know, just <laughs> the concept of that is cute to me. Um, no, it's just a regular brawl around ringside, at least for the first little while. They're just throwing each other into guardrails. They're pulling out tables. It's funny. They, they, uh, Moth pulls out a table and sets it up in the ring, and then the crowd starts chanting, we want tables. And I'm just like, fellas... It's it's there. Like the, the, game, the game, there's a table there. You already got the table. Um, but yeah, it's just like very standard stuff. And I thought it was really funny. At one point, Devito whipped Whitmer into the rail and then yelled, "This is fucking hardcore." And, and I was just like, "Okay." I mean, it just seems like a standard brawl to me. I don't, like it feels like they were trying too hard to like put over yeah. the idea of hardcore because like it wasn't like you know. But you know, they were doing like all like the. the ridiculous stuff they always do like Logue throwing chairs at Whitmer's head and it completely register like you know barely registers with the crowd at, or the announcers which just shows like it was a total nothing spot at the time to just throw chairs at your head um Moff and DeVito blade uh, I think uh Loke blades at 1.2 um so they bleed Nolte again puts over that Whitmer is a protege of Harley Race um because I guess that's his claim to fame still and, you know, Foley mostly stays out of the way. He's a non-factor, which I guess is good. Um, so they, they, they just brawl around ringside, throw chairs at each other's heads. Back in the ring, Moth drops DeVito on his head with a suplex, and Loke slams him in the head with a chair. At this point, I feel like, I don't know, the energy level just isn't really there. They do a chop battle, like a four-way chop battle, but I don't know. The, the, it doesn't really do much for me. The crowd is pretty into it, I will say. Um, Moff and Whitmer go for like a clothesline suplex combo, but DeVito pulls Moff to the outside. Um, the Carnage crew, they hit uh, the Carnage Plex on Whitmer for two, and Moff sets up that table in the corner, and he does his cannonball into DeVito's head on the table and crashes through. That seemed dangerous. Um, yeah. So there's a very delayed cover by Moff, but DeVito kicks out. Then they do that thing that they did at the last show where they put a garbage can over Loke's head and they just brutalize it with chair shots and they get the win. Um, that, uh, you know, I think that's what um, Loke and DeVito did to Whitmer at the last show, yeah. actually. So the, a yeah. little bit of a story payoff, at least, where they're getting revenge by doing the exact same thing. But but the match itself, I don't know. I wasn't really feeling it. It just seemed very standard to me. Like they did some really scary stuff, but like the drama of the match to me wasn't there. And I didn't think it was that intense. The crowd seemed to like it more than I was, than I did. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, I appreciate it, I guess, that the violence was there to further a storyline. But the match was not particularly dynamic. And I don't think the match was any good, <laughs> if I'm going to be really honest. I, I think you came up with the perfect phrase in your review to sum this match up, which is trying too hard. It felt like the commentary was trying too hard to put this over as like – like Gabe does this thing sometimes on commentary when it's a big gimmick match where he's like, it, this is how feuds end in Ring of Honor with like we save the gimmick matches for like you know the, the serious feuds. And he was doing a little bit of that here and it's like – and he was going over like this is how this feud progressed on this show, blah, blah, blah. And it's like – 
I, I watched the shows. I didn't remember any of it because that's how unmemorable and how like little substance this feud has been based on. And so having Gabe trying to sell it like this is the, you know, this is how feuds end. This is a big car. And then knowing that after the match, this whole match was, you know, had kind of a weight on it because Mick Foley was going to use it afterwards in the storyline as an example of like, this is real hardcore wrestling. This is great wrestling. And it's like, yeah, it just, it, it it wasn't the worst match you've ever seen, but it was like average at best, and it didn't live up to any of the commentary or the storyline. And it's like a lot of these Carnage Crew brawls. Like sometimes I like the Carnage Crew, but sometimes you get matches like this where it's a lot of brawling at ringside, kind of plotting. Everyone, in this case everyone but Loke, is bleeding like in three minutes in. They throw each other into barricades 800 times. It's the kind of match that it's probably a lot of fun if you're in the front row. But if you're watching at home months or years later, it's kind of boring. And then when they go in, in the second half, yeah, you do see some suplexes. There are the couple of big spots you mentioned. But – yeah, there just seemed to be something missing in that second half, even where it got to be more of a in the ring match and less of just a, the kind of generic brawl. And yeah, just probably my least favorite match. Even though, again, I, I, it's not like the effort wasn't. I could tell, you know, and I'm sure these guys were trying hard because Mick Foley's there watching. You know, it just it, the effort. It, sometimes you need more than effort, and this match was missing something. Um, I also felt like Matt, you know, Mick Foley was younger and sprier during this match, but did you feel kind of bad watching Mick Foley? Like I noticed every time he had to stand up from watch, like counting a pinfall, he had to really base himself and put his hand on his one knee as he stands up and like took him a second to stand up. And I just felt like, man, like even in 2004, I know he was still going to wrestle some more, but like, it felt like. Having Mick Foley wrestle a match, I mean, referee a match at this point in his career was like cruel and unusual punishment because just making him do something that required him getting off his feet and then standing back up over and over again, I felt bad. Um, yeah, what so Mick Foley in 2004 would have been what 39? Um, yeah, yeah, you know, so it's, I mean, obviously, that's not you know, it's barely older than me right now, um, but. I did not spend a lot of my young, my youth jumping off of ring aprons and landing on my hip. Um, so I, um, yeah, that's that's rough for McFoley. And obviously, you know, I mean, but he, when, you know, when he put his mind to it, like he could still do great stuff. Like just earlier that year with Randy Orton, but yeah, this is a rough spot for him to be in, considering it's not a super necessary role either. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, also a couple of things I want to mention, you mentioned the DeVito screaming, this is hardcore into a cam. What you didn't mention was he was screaming it into the handheld that was being shot at ringside by Shane Hagedorn. And what I love is that's not the camera angle they used, like, because as we established earlier, they don't always use the second camera. Like they just use that for backups. pretty, Pretty much never. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just like a, an emergency backup. So, like, DeVito's playing to a camera that isn't being used, which which I thought was funny. Uh, Loke also did this really ugly swinging DDT off a chair on the floor, which just looked not good at all. But, again, it was one of those things where I was like, man, you guys are trying, but it's just something's, something's missing. But, anyway, after the match, the fans actually chant on their own volition, Ring of Hardcore, so they're more into the storyline than I am. Um, Mick gets on the mic and he says, 
He knows hardcore when he sees it, and that match was hardcore. Uh, Mick thanks everyone for coming out, and he hypes up the rest of the show in kind of a lovable way, where he's like, we got a great card coming up, blah, blah, blah. He's almost like, he almost came off as like the host of SNL after the monologue, being like, we got a great show tonight, you know, the Foo Fighters are here. Like, he had that kind of energy to him, which I, which I, I thought was charming. Um, Mick puts over Ring of Honor by saying it's every bit as good as WWE, which gets a big Ring of Honor chant. They really appreciate him putting it over that way. But then Mick says, I do love WWE. Vince still signed some pretty big checks for me. But then he goes, it's nice to know there's an alternative and that there's something that's sports and not sports entertainment. So Mick going fairly far in you know, his praise for Ring of Honor, kind of doing a little bit of light nagging of his big time employer. Uh, Mick then poses to chance. It looks like the segment's over. When Ricky Steamboat comes out to the ring, he gets a few chants of his own. Uh, Mick says Ricky is a legend, and a few weeks ago, it would have been a pleasure to share a ring with him. But then Ricky had to go to Philly and bury him in his style of wrestling. And he says, now worse yet, you're coming out and you're ruining my pop. Uh, Ricky shits on the hardcore match that they just had. He says anyone can be a stuntman, which I guess is him using language that uh, Ric Flair used in his book against Foley, which, as we've talked about in recent shows, this whole feud, the point of it is basically to try and Ring of Honor trying to do the Flair-Foley feud without having access to Ric Flair. Um, Steamboat goes, it takes a wrestler to put an actual match together. Uh, Ricky notes that he calls hardcore wrestling garbage wrestling and pointing to the garbage can in the ring. He goes, you certainly put the icing on the cake tonight with this. Um, Mick says, the problem is Ricky sees a garbage can, but that's all he sees, where Mick sees the guts and determination and the willingness to go to the extra mile for the fans. Mick says he'll be damned if he's going to be lectured on pure wrestling by a guy who wore gills and breathed fire, which I thought was a pretty good line. It gets a big reaction from the crowd. Uh, Mick says the problem is Ricky thinks the opposite of hardcore is pure wrestling, whereas Mick thinks that the opposite of hardcore is softcore. And then Mick says Steamboat is Ricky the softcore dragon crowd actually starts chanting softcore dragon uh steamboat notes that in dayton they saw a 60 minute match last time they were in the city that the fans loved he puts over homicide and punk from earlier tonight he says those are guys who put their hearts and souls into things without using a garbage can steamboat goes over the matches he's had in his career with don morocco and jake roberts randy savage and rick flair and then he woos in mick's face mick says ricky deserves every accolade that comes his way including his matches against jake roberts which he says was the snake versus the little lizard um then he goes but mick says his match with randy savage is one of his personal favorites but if steamboat enters the ring one more time and mentions the name of dick flair they're gonna have a little problem Mick says, tomorrow night, how about they settle this in Chicago with Ricky bringing his best pure wrestlers and Mick will bring his hardcore crew. And then I, I thought it was interesting. The fans actually booed that they weren't going to get to see this match tonight. So which, it, you know, it's not often you see hear the fans boo about like the booking, but it's kind of like one of those. You don't usually hear this in Ring of Honor where it's almost like a WWE type thing where it's like fans booing when they set up a pay-per-view match on Raw where the fans are like, hey, we're not going to see that here. Boo. So I thought that was interesting. Ricky walks out and Mick says the last thing he wants Ricky to hear is the sound of his music and the fans chanting his name. So I actually thought uh, we've talked about I, I think this hardcore versus pure wrestling angle. I'm not a huge fan of it because – it feels really forced, and I don't really buy that either guy's that passionate about their side of things. I actually thought the promos, though, actually kind of made me 
care about this angle because I thought both guys got off some good lines. Their deliveries were very good for the most part. Um, my problem was, Matt, this was a significant promo segment, and I would say you could understand maybe at best 75% of what they were saying over the house PA system. And I think that's kind of a big problem for a segment built around promos. Yeah, um, the promo itself, um, like, besides that problem that you mentioned, um, you know, I mean, Mick Foley's a really good promo pretty much no matter what. Um, Mick, uh, Ricky Steamboat is not famous for being a great promo. He was fine. Um, I I kind of, I still am not totally buying into the subject matter, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it de- didn't get over with me so well, but it was wasn't a bad segment it was pretty good um it's just uh i don't know just the, it, it, it didn't it didn't totally work for me you know i was thinking the other day too I, I think this is one of those things a lot of things in ring of honor hold up from 15 years ago i think this is one of those things that's really dated because like it feels like especially in the wake of rick flair's book that came out at this time that was calling down foley but it feels like people going hardcore wrestling isn't real wrestling and all this stuff like that feels like such a conversation that was like a hot topic 20 years ago that like i feel like no one is that passionate about it today like nowadays people are like if you like gcw death matches like people are like yeah like what you like where back then people got really mad if you liked or didn't like hardcore wrestling or considered it wrestling yeah i mean there's still the whole like Jim Cornette type of vibe, but that's more like high spot wrestling, I yeah. guess. Um, but it's the similar principle, right? Like, is this yeah. is this the wrestling that we that we've come to like? I mean, the thing is, I don't think anyone really deep down at the time thought of Mick Foley as like a, a garbage wrestler. You know, everyone knew that he was like just a great wrestler that excelled in those types of matches. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like this was more just like a petty thing between Ric Flair and Mick Foley personally more than any deep, real deep philosophical disagreement among fans. And again, going into believability, like I was listening to, I forget what, but it was some old podcast from years ago. And they were talking about like the guy had been in the early nineties scene, like Mick Foley and Ricky Steamboat wrestled each other on house shows. And he was like, they had surprisingly great chemistry and had like a great match. And so and it's just stuff like that where it kind of just, you know, obviously it's just a storyline, but it's really hard for me to believe that like, you know, that Ricky Steamboat really thinks so little of Mick Foley, which is kind of what this whole angle is trying to sell, is that, you know, he's just key out these lines where you're you're a stunt man. It's like, those are Ric Flair's words, and I honestly don't believe that you believe that. I mean, I honestly don't even believe that Ric Flair believes that. I believe that Ric Flair just was pissed off that Mick Foley wrote in his book that he thought Ric Flair didn't do a good job booking him. And he, I mean, Ric Flair literally says in his book, this is the receipt, like, he literally just says, I'm getting revenge on Mick Foley for saying that. So it's just a very fake feeling angle. But there are a couple notes from it. Um, one from The Observer, Dave wrote around this time that Foley's attitude right now is to use the flare book and Ring of Honor angles, feeling has he feeling that he has the right to do so, but he doesn't want to work any angles that benefit Ric Flair financially. Matt, boy, does that change. Um because he works in an actual feud with Ric Flair in WWE, which I have to imagine benefited both financially. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, time passes. Yeah, yeah. Hurt no feeling, offense. you know, even without the money involved, you know, you could easily see those two guys getting over it. You know what I mean? 
I also feel though that there's a lot of things that guys were telling the newsletters and stuff that they wouldn't do, but it was more like they wouldn't do it for a certain amount of money. Because wasn't there a few shows ago we talked about there was a note in one of the newsletters that said like Ricky Steamboat doesn't want to wrestle because he feels like he couldn't meet his old standard. And it's like, well, maybe what Ricky Steamboat meant was he couldn't do it for like four thousand dollars. Like, but for a <laughs> full time contract in WWE, he could he could do it. But um. The other note from this that I thought was interesting was PW Insider wrote that this was kind of weird. They were talking about a live report about the segment. Since most of the people around me had read – oh, they were. this is about the match. Um, no, wait. You know what? This note doesn't even make sense at this point. Uh, never mind. Uh, never mind. Bah, 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 bah. No, wait. No, wait. I got the note now. I, let me, never mind again. So – um. I guess from a live report said, so you know how I just said in the end of this angle, it was set up as like this impromptu thing for the next night. Like Mick Foley says, I'll get two of my hardcore guys and you get two of your technical guys and we'll settle this tomorrow. And in fact, there's a segment at the end of the show that shows Steamboat picking his two technical guys. So this live report said, this was kind of weird since most of the people around me had read that this match was signed weeks ago. So apparently like the, the tag match that they're acting like is completely impromptu was actually on like the record is happening weeks earlier. I uh, I suspected that when I saw that promo, I was like, I have a feeling they were already promoting a match, like a, a match between those two uh, camps for the next yeah, show. Unfortunately, um, the Wayback Machine, I've been going to the old Ring of Honor website as it was time appropriate to get like old newswires and stuff. For some reason around this era through the rest of the year, at least it just, you can't get anything. It just goes to dead links no matter what. So that's the kind of stuff I'd love to catch there. If anyone has a way to like figure a way around that, probably there isn't, email us. But otherwise, next up, we're backstage for intermission. Dave Prezax with CM Punk. Uh, Punk's neck is getting iced down by his then-girlfriend, Tracy Brooks, who makes her first appearance in Ring of Honor in quite some time. Uh, Prezak asks, asks Punk how his neck is doing. Punk says his pride hurts more than his neck, and it's not going to stop him from getting his hands on Generation Next. And tomorrow, the world title is coming home with him. Quick little promo. Um, next up, we have a four-corner survival match. It's Nigel McGuinness defeating Josh Daniels, Matt Stryker, and Roderick Strong in 16 minutes, 40 seconds, when Nigel pins Daniels after he hits the Tower of London. Uh, should note that according to the torch, Izzy was originally supposed to be in this four way and, uh, he had to pull off of this event. And so Josh of, Daniels. Because of a bad trip. Yeah, because of a bad, because of the bad trip. His bad trip was Josh Daniels' big game because he was apparently not originally slotted for this match until he had to pull off. I'm, all, um, I'm always okay. a little bit surprised to see Daniels at this point because, like, they've just, like, faced him down so much. But, you know, I guess that makes sense. Like, he's there as a replacement. So I thought this was another match that was just kind of average at best. I've talked about this a lot. There are four ways I like. There are four ways I dislike. I like four ways that tend to be more spot-festy because I feel like a lot of wrestlers seem to have a hard time telling a story in a four-way. Not that it's impossible, but a lot of wrestlers, you you just don't see it that often. And so I prefer if you're going to not tell a story, well, show me a lot of cool spots, have a fast-paced match. And this is the opposite direction of that where four-way sometimes fell for me where it's it's kind of like just mid-tempo, the kind of action you would see in the middle of a match for most of this match. 
And it's just guys trading off, doing a few moves, tagging out. There, it's not really exciting. There's not really a heavy story. The most that this gives you in terms of story is they do a little bit in the first half of the match based around everyone kind of um, picking on Roderick Strong, who's the heel, where they kind of exclude him and don't tag him in for a while. At one point, they all kind of take turns beating him up. But even there, the payoff to that were for the first bit where they all don't let him get into the match. The payoff is supposed to be Nigel tags him in and then he punches him in the balls, I guess. But you see it only like the camera doesn't catch it. And then the announcers don't catch it. So like the kind of payoff, the comedy payoff, even for that bit doesn't, doesn't make it. Um, there's also a spot in this that I absolutely really disliked. Well, I didn't dislike the spot. I disliked the setup. So there's a spot in this match where um, the spot itself is fine. It's Nigel suplexes Matt Stryker onto Roderick Strong, who's on his hands and knees behind them. The problem is how they set it up, which is um, the setup comes where Stryker jumps in to break up a pin Nigel is making on Roderick Strong. And Nigel responds by getting to this like weird, like really angry, like sh- argument with Stryker. Like he acts like he's been betrayed. And even Mark Nolte's like, oh, it's a four way. It's everyone for themselves. Like he's taking personal umbrage, but it's just to set up the spot. So Roderick can get into position and you can see Roderick like really like looking up at them and crawling over and adjusting and holding on all fours. Like it's just a really fake belabored way to get to a a moderately cool spot that I just felt was like too much work and too ugly to get to it. But yeah, I don't have a ton to specifically get into the match. There was one cool spot right at the end, near the end where um, Nigel's going to tower of London Roderick. And then, um, Striker spears Nigel as he's about to do it, and then Roderick like flips into a sunset flip from the position. I thought that was cool. Um, the, there was another problem too I held with the match where on a night where Ring of Honor was all about like enforcing the legal man and taking the rules seriously again, they definitely lost track of who was the legal man at points. And the ref did, and the announcers even acknowledged, well, I guess the ref can't keep track of it, where on a night where they were otherwise talking about how they were going to be so strict about it, this was, a, again, an example of how quickly that can backpedal, backslide. But, Matt, I just – I already feel like I've spent too much time talking about this match. It just – too much time and not ent- – it was an average match, but for 17 minutes, I want more than something that's like basically like technically fine basic wrestling. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you ever want just like an average match, right? You'd like a good match. Um, yeah, but especially if it's 17 minutes of average, yeah. like if it's going to be average, give me like nine or ten minutes. I, st- I still thought Nigel looked pretty good here. I think he was definitely the standout. I think he's looked good pretty much every time. Um, you know, I thought some of what they were trying to do was was kind of interesting. You know, the whole keep out st- strong and then eventually where they make almost like strong, like the face in peril almost, like I guess the heel in peril. Um, yeah. You know, everyone wanted to pay back Generation Next. I thought I sort of enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, other than – I mean there was a lot of hard striking in this match. And I don't know. Do you ever – did you feel like Strong and Daniels almost had like a, like a very similar vibe here? Like their builds are kind of similar. They both wore the red tights. Um, obviously, Strong had a little bit more of that like Generation Next swag obviously. But it's, yeah. not like, it's not like he had a ton of personality either at this point. I mean, you could argue Stryker, Daniels, and Strong are all kind of in that kind of blandish white mid-card dudes. Uh, obviously, Strong doesn't quite have the muscles of the other two. And, and obviously, Strong would turn out to be a great wrestler. And like you say, even here has a little bit more of a swagger. But they all kind of do fit 
a similar like competent kind of missing something mold. Yeah, strong. In some respects. Strong and Daniels had similar like looks, like in terms of what they were wearing, and also like we're big into like the like the, the strikes, right? Like like yeah. Daniels did chops also. Um, so like, so there was kind of like, just like, yeah, but, but you're right. There was a lot of genericness in the match and then Nigel, who was not generic at all. And, um, you know, I also thought on top of everything you said, it did sort of fall apart kind of at the end where like guys were doing moves, but like there wasn't really much of a flow. Um, you know, Daniels did hit like an impressive high angle German suplex on striker at one point. I thought that was pretty cool, but yeah, the match was just disjointed kind of sloppy at one point for no reason mark nolte's like you know what would be a good tag team josh daniels and chad collier and i'm just <laughs> like okay like <laughs> gay was probably just like no <laughs> but um hey if you say so um but yeah other than that i pretty much agree with you yeah you had a good point too about it. that's the other flaw is it got did get kind of sloppy at points too like i think at one point roderick strong and matt striker fuck up a, a pump handle spot where it looks like strong's going to uh do a pump handle move and he just kind of falls they both kind of fall down and then um strong does like a schoolboy and i think the announcing tries to act like oh that's an interesting innovative thing like a pump handle into a schoolboy but if that was t- intentional it wasn't a good idea because it didn't look good. But anyway, uh, one little piece of Ring of Honor trivia. Matt, I might be wrong about this, but this is the first time I noticed uh, Nigel using Roll On as a, as a theme music. I think he had a different theme before. I think this is like one of those shows where another little thing falls into place because he used that theme for quite a while, I think. You're right. I'm pretty sure up until the last show he used um, the cover of I Fought the Law by The Clash. Yeah. Um, so you're right. I'm, I that that's a good point. I noticed it too, but I didn't put it together. This was the first time. Yeah. So, and a lot of times I miss stuff like that, but sometimes I do catch those little first, and it's one of those things you sometimes a little added bonus when you watch every show. You get to do this geeky thing where like, well, they, they they don't know. Little do they know he'll be using that a uh, theme for years to come. Well, actually, it wasn't. It was. It's funny because like you remember the era, but he only used that theme for like I think like a year, maybe even less. Huh. See, even my memory is bad, which is the whole reason we're doing this podcast. Not for fun, but so I can refresh my memory of well, the well, wrestling I watched 15 years ago. In Through the Years time, he uses that theme for about 12 years, so don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> that's one of my favorite lines you've had in a long time. Well, that's a good dig on – maybe because it's a dig on us. <laughs> I can always appreciate. But – um Coming up next, in the semi-main event, it's the Ring of Honor World Title Match. Samoa Joe makes a successful defense of the Ring of Honor title. He defeats Rocky Romero via submission in 1811 using an STF, which is, I don't think, uh, we've seen Joe yet use the STF to actually win a match. It's a regular submission of his, but he actually gets the win here. Um, Matt, uh, I don't want to tip my hand. What did you think about... As I mentioned on the end of the last show, never seen this show before, so I've never seen this match before. What do you think about Rocky Romero versus Samoa Joe? Well, it was hard not to compare it a little bit to um, the Reyes match, right? Would yeah. you agree? Like, it's like you sort of immediately went to that comparison, which they had back in May of 2004? Yeah, I mean, that's a natural comparison, obviously. It's the other half of the tag champs in their single match. And I, I think I would argue that's like Reyes' best performance in Ring of Honor so far. Yeah, we liked that match a lot, um, way yeah. more than we expected. I think 
and I apologize, my, my throat was a little dry, so I have a lozenge that I'm finishing, but, um, so that if, if I sound kind of weird, um, but I, um, um, I, I, like, I think this match was technically better than that match, but I think I liked that match more. Um, I expected less from it, and I think I got more from it. I think it was a little bit more high energy, and the crowd was, like, more into it, and there were some memorable spots. I feel like this was, like, good. Like, it it did a good job of, like, working the, the, the gimmick, which is Joe really dominated for a lot of this match, which makes sense, right? Joe's the champion. He's much bigger. Um, Romero's a, a tag team guy, much smaller. Um, and then at the end, Romero got some big spots, right? So, like, um, you know, just, you know, the idea of... Um, Homicide cheats a few times so Rocky could kick Joe, and Rocky gets like a few advantages, but Joe will just like knock Romero down with like a big slap, or like, and he'll he'll win all the strike battles that they try to do. You know, I I feel like like this is one of the few matches where Joe goes for the um, ole ole kick and he just hits it the first time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that that doesn't usually happen these days, despite what Mark Nolte says. And Gabe says sells big. Like that, anytime Romero fights back at all, Gabe is like, "Oh my God, Romero! I can't believe what he's doing!" Like he makes a big deal out of any offense Romero gets, even though Romero's a tag team champion. So, like near the end of the match, he gets a decent flurry of offense. He does a jumping DDT off the rope, um, and the announcers say Joe blocked it, but I, I don't know. It looked like he hit it to me. I guess because Joe dropped to his knees. He, he fell to his knees, and he doesn't take any kind of head bump on it. Okay. I um I, I I went back and watched it. I thought it looked okay, but I, well, whatever. Um, and then they do a strike exchange, and Romero actually gets the better of it, with like slaps and jumping knees to the chin. Um, but Joe gets his hand on the bottom rope, and I feel like Gabe at this point is like kind of overselling how close Romero is to victory. It never really felt like it was close, but Romero does do like a celebration after that near fall, because the idea is that Joe got his hand on the rope at the last minute, so it was like he thought he got a three count. And then Joe just hits a big knee to the side of Romero's head for two. Hits a big uh, back, you know, back suplex on his head. And Gabe calls Romero the toughest man on the planet, which again, like I just don't think matched what we were seeing. Um, Romero does like a head scissors takeover into a cross arm breaker, but Joe like very quickly got the ropes. He got another big slap sequence, but Romero went for another arm breaker. Joe blocked it, power, powered him up, dropped him in a slam got the STF and just reared back until Romero tapped. Um, like you said, I think the first time that he won't the STF. I thought the last five minutes were actually very good, but um, I just it was just a little bit too one-sided for me before that. Um, but I didn't think like I didn't think there was anything specifically wrong with it. Like I think it told the story that it made sense to tell and I thought the guys looked good. But it just felt like a long squash match which like with like a good five minute competitive match at the end. So I'm going to uh, – so you, you gave a reasonable review like where you, it seems like – well, you said it yourself where it's it's not a great match but not terrible. I like this significantly less than you. I thought this was the most – maybe the most disappointing match of Samoa Joe's title run. I And for me, that's like – this match was barely average. I really I, – I might go lower than that. I really didn't like this match. Um, so there, a couple problems – one thing I would disagree with you, and we usually we don't usually have major disagreements, but I would say I strongly disagree with you saying this was match told the story it was meaning to tell because I thought the intriguing thing about this match on paper and how we talked about Joe's promo earlier tonight set it up so well is the idea that planted the seed that Rocky Romero 
knows Joe's weaknesses. You know, they train together in dojos and, you know, he might give Joe a real run for his money. The commentary tries to hype it up. And as you point out, Rocky Romero gets pretty dominated in this match. And at no point in this match does Romero do anything that would suggest that he has any kind of insight or knows anything like like you even mentioned joe hits the ole ole kick the very first attempt which a lot of times he doesn't like there's no moment where like rot romero goes oh i figured you out or i know a hidden weakness romero gets treated like kind of i mean i know he's not nearly on the level of joe but he's one half of the tag champs and he gets really like dominated and i also in terms of like the action of the match I felt like the first half of the match, I appreciated that they were doing something different. I always love variety, and it was very different than most Joe and matches where it was a lot of just standing on their feet doing hard kicks and then like clinches in the ropes. It was almost like um, like a work shoot, although not very believable. But but the problem was they kept just doing the same two things over and over again, where it started to work feel like less like like a fight and more like these two guys were having a sparring session. Like it just, and then when it game in the second half, it's like they flip a switch and goes, okay, this is going to be a regular Samoa Joe match, except it felt like a less exciting version of a Samoa Joe title match, like uh, an inferior version of it. Cause normally I really love Samoa Joe title matches. And even the end where like, Joe, I love that Joe he has used so many different finishers to win during this title run, but I felt like in, in a match where, where Rocky Romero got dominated so bad, having Romero tap out near the ropes to the STF, which is a submission that Joe uses in every match practically and no one loses to, I felt kind of, it was weird because I am sure Joe and Romero are friends, but it, the way it wrestled, it felt like Romero was getting buried a little bit almost. Um, yeah, I just I had I was I was kind of intrigued by this match on paper and I just felt like I I just re- one of the most disappointing matches I've had of watching Ring of Honor on this rewatch. I just really didn't like it. Well, one thing I'll agree with you on, you didn't quite put it this way, but this was a B-level world title match and it was treated like one. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they didn't they didn't give Romero a lot of big moments to really make you think that he was going to win, despite what Gabe... Would you agree with me that Gabe sort of oversold how well Romero oh, was doing? Oh, I forgot to mention that you when you made that point, I was like pumping my fist because I wrote in my notes like, not just was he overselling like that Romero had a chance to win, but then when Romero was kicking out of like standard Joe offense later in the match, every time he was acting like Romero was the, like, we've never, like, he was basically acting like no one's ever kicked out of those moves before and that Romero was the toughest man ever. Like, it felt like he was almost trying to overcompensate. Yeah, I mean, he was literally overcompensating. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with a lot of your points. I guess when I would say, like, worse than average, like, would I really rather watch this, would I really rather watch that special K tag team match than this one or the Trent Acid match than this one? Like, no. Like, these are good wrestlers. And they were doing good stuff. But, like, there were, you know, I think, like, there was the presentation left something to be desired. I agree with you that there was a lot of, like, repetition early on where, like, 
they would do these strike battles, but like then like and you'd think like, oh Romero, he's a hard striker, but then Joe would always just win the strike battle. And they did that yeah. like maybe like three or four times in the early part of the match. Like I I I agree that's a little too much. Like I think maybe the size difference got in I mean, I don't want to psychoanalyze Samoa Joe, but maybe the size difference got into his head. And he was sort of like, I can't treat this guy like he's on my level. Like, and Romero was just sort of like, yeah, I get that. Because, um, I mean, you know, he was he, – <laughs> I mean, no, but just like in terms of like the pecking order, he wasn't on his level. So what was he going to do? Um, and also Joe had a much bigger main event the next night. Um, but like – I feel like you – oh, sorry. I was just going to say, but even if like you t- go by that standard, like we've seen Joe in a very similar situation where he wrestled Mark Briscoe, you know, an undersized tag champ lower on the card than this in like kind of a B title defense. And I would argue like that was a much better match than this. I mean Ricky Reyes, like I, I said, I like this yeah, – ma- yeah. I like this match a lot more than you did, but I definitely like the Ricky Reyes match more. Um, yeah. And when I say I like this match a lot more than you did, I'm like, this is a three star match. You know, like I. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't even hit three stars for this. Right. I, you know, I wouldn't say like, oh, this is a dud or whatever. But um, yeah. And and to your point, like you talking about wanting to see the special K match for this. I think that brings up a good point, which is maybe I judge a match like this harsher than I should just because the difference is like when I see special K versus delirious and Jimmy Jacobs in a random tag, like I don't have high expectations. Not that I think it's going to be terrible. No, no, of course, like of this, course, of course, this was like an intriguing match on paper. I thought I was like, I was legitimately, this was maybe the match I was most interested in seeing because I hadn't seen this match before. And even homicide and CM Punk, like I had seen them wrestle multiple times before. And even that angle of the idea of, oh, they do know each other well and they do have like legit history behind the scenes. Like I just thought I was going to see more. You yeah, know? I think the biggest difference I guess between us is that I my expectations weren't that high because if like I figured like, you know, this is 15 and a half years later, almost 16 years later that I would have heard more about the match. And also yeah. just like – I don't know like – I liked the last five minutes a lot. So that's the biggest difference, I think, between the two of us in terms of how we thought, saw this match. And, and the other thing I have to say, to be completely fair, is you know that Observer report said that uh, – and I think Ring of Honor said afterwards, if this is to be, be believed, that Romero did get knocked out legit during the match by a slap. And, and in the interest of fairness – I'm not going to change my review of the match because, you know, we can only review what we actually got. But in the in fairness to them, like if a guy gets legit knocked down in the middle of the match, that could drastically change what they had planned maybe or that, just your your ability to perform. That's true. I mean he still seems like he did a pretty good job then, yeah. in, in that case. The funny thing is, you know, like he got knocked out by a slap. And it's funny because we remember the Reyes – I mean obviously that's not funny. It's horrible. But like we remember the Reyes match where that slap was like super memorable and loud and it sounds like – sometimes it's like the most um, – like the most auditorily impressive things are not the most devastating things because that was like the loudest slap of all time and I don't think Reyes got knocked out. Whereas Romero apparently did and I, I – like it didn't, it didn't register in terms of like how it seemed on TV the way that the Reyes one did. Yeah, slaps are weird where it feels like usually they're not going to hurt you, but like it's always like 
it could just randomly hit in the right place and ruin things. Like, wasn't the story with, you know, our 2003 match of the year, Steve Carino versus Homicide? Like, I think Homicide relayed that, like, that Steve Carino just hit him in, like, the exact right spot to rupture his eardrum. Or it was the other way around. I think Steve Carino got his eardrum ruptured. Right. And Homicide just hit him, like, just like, you know, he probably could slap him another 20 times and not do that. But he just hit him, like, in that perfect spot where, yeah, it's crazy how a guy like Ricky Reyes, you know, he can huge slaps and then there's no one slap on this show where you go in this match where you go oh that definitely is a clearly would knock a guy out legit but apparently it did you know i mean just the the world of slaps matt uh it's it's unfortunate i think we we can both agree this match did not slap yeah exactly it was not a banger and it did not slap um uh, the only other thing I want to mention from the match is just to keep up with the trend. Uh, this night was kind of booked around showing the rules would be enforced early on in the match. Homicide is who was at ringside grabs Joe's leg and they make a big point of having, I think it's Todd Sinclair, like f- seeing it and then injecting homicide from ringside, which again is something that we had not been seeing a lot of in ring of honor. So they really did try hard this night to do a lot of spots and finishes that, that were built around showing you, the rules are more – we're actually going to pay attention to the rules for a few months. But um, finally, in our main event, Jimmy Jacobs and the Second City Saints of Ace Steel and CM Punk, scored to the ring by Ricky Steamboat and Tracy Brooks, defeated Generation Next of Alex Shelley, Austin Aries, and Jack Evans in 32 minutes, 26 seconds, when Punk pins Aries after he hits the Pepsi plunge. So before the match um, – Alex Shelley gets on the mic and he informs us that we're about to witness a very special occasion as Generation Next is going to take their place as the greatest faction in the history of Ring of Honor. Shelley says they're going to put that has-been Ricky Steamboat where he belongs. Then Shelley tries to continue, but then Aries snatches the mic out of his hand so he can say that Generation Next is going to destroy the Saints and Steamboat. But then after that, the only thing left to do is going to be to see who will get the Ring of Honor world title. Shelley seems not impressed by that. so Trouble in paradise. Yeah, they're containing that storyline where Aries is trying to assert himself, and Aries is kind of making it clear that we're going to be in a race to see who wins the world title. It's interesting looking back now, realizing that like they they definitely were planting the seeds of Aries winning the title. Like it was a surprise when it happened, but like it's not like they didn't lay the groundwork for it. Yeah, like sometimes we, I when I look back at booking, I go like, well, when did they know they were going to do this, or when did? They, and obviously, we don't know exactly when Gabe. Like, I always would love to know when did Gabe decide that Aries was going to be be the guy to beat Joe? Like, was it after testing the limit? Was that after Survivor of the Fittest? I don't know, but we definitely know. Like from the last couple shows, I think it's pretty clear he knew by this point that it was going to be Aries. Um. So before the match, uh, Aries tugs on Tracy Brooks's dress, gets a slap in the face from her for his trouble. Uh, Punk tries to attack uh, Aries right then. And then to keep the problematic stuff going, although I have to admit, I'm ashamed to admit I laugh at this. Jack Evans screams, Jack Evans going to have to choke a bitch. And for some reason, Jack Evans trying to act tough like that. I just I laughed. I can't help it. It's also a bit uh, of a Chappelle show reference. You know, yeah, it's 2004. Yeah, exactly. This is another very 2004 moment. So, Matt, it's it's weird. Like, this is a match that went on for a long time that I enjoyed, but 
it's hard to have a lot to say about like the way I would describe this match is it was like a house show match, but in a good way where it felt kind of low stakes, but it also felt like everyone was having fun for a ring of honor main event. Usually they do feel like they have higher stakes and more on the line. Even though this match had a spot where Tracy Brooks gets drop kicked by Austin Aries leading to a big brawl. It didn't seem like there was that much hate between the two teams, maybe as much as you'd expect, even though they're technically in a feud at this point. Um, but I just like the match. I feel like it's almost like how I said uh, Punk and Homicide in the opener was like at a consistent 8 out of 10. This match might have had a little, few peaks and valleys, but I felt like this was like a consistent 7 out of 10. It was just like there was usually something going on. It was usually fun. There's some spots I could put out that were fun. I thought Jack Evans, as always, Jack Evans is just fun all the time. He is so good at like taking a beating, at being a little shit, even on the ring apron, and – I talked about this on Twitter. This might be the screen cap for the show, but I don't know if I've ever seen CM Punk happier than when he got to wrestle Jack Evans in a singles exchange here. He just has a smile from ear to ear. He really dominates Jack Evans. And I think Jack Evans has probably got to be one of the most fun guys to like wrestle because he just sells huge for people. He's bendy. You know, he'll take a beating. He's such a great shit talker. It's easy to like get get over on him, so to speak. But yeah, this match just felt like a B show house show match where they even had like some of the goofy spots, like, you know, punks doing the 10 count punches and things like that. Like it just felt almost like an old school house, like house show main event with some modern indie offense. And even just the end where it, the match ends and then punk and, and um the whole face team and steamboat like huss in the ring to end it felt like a very like just a very simple old school like send the local crowd home happy finish and i don't know i have a feeling i might like this match more than you but we'll see like what did you like am, am i overrating this a little too much because it was um, it's not a special match but i just i thought it was an enjoyable half hour i um I mean, you're right that you enjoyed it more than me. I, I, I definitely liked it more than I liked the, uh, the 40 minute elimination match from the last show. I thought the crowd was into it, you know, so I'll give him that. But it was too long for me. Like, I agree with a lot of your compliments that it felt like a beat, like a, you know, like it was low stakes, but like fairly enjoyable, you know, like the, some of the performances were good. But I feel like it would have been a very good match if they just like cut it in, like in half. Like it yeah. really did not need to be that long, and I guess like when you're you're making your house show comparison, I guess it makes sense because sometimes at house shows, they do give the guys more time to just kind of like mess around and work the crowd and stooge and like you know just like really get into their like heel face dynamics, yeah. Which I guess they did here, but I don't know. It just like as the match went on, it just it just felt a little too low stakes for me, you know, for a main event. Um, you know, there was some fun stuff early, you know, like Aries taking an inverted atomic drop cell that would make Rick Rude proud. I like that. And all the stooging, the begging off at the low blow, um, the break dancing where um, um, he, he, he do, Evans does some break dancing. Then he does a random backflip. So there's a you got serve chant. So then Punk drops down and just Ace just like shoves him over, um, shoves Evans over Punk's back. So like the server became the survey. Um I, I you know that was that was you know just like fun little like 
you know, like house show stuff, like you said, like Punk doing a robot dance, which Gabe calls the most <laughs> ridiculous thing he's ever seen in an ROH ring. I really did enjoy that stuff. I just wish yeah, like, like it, it, sorry. Oh, you go on. I just wish it had gone on like five, like, you know, maybe for five minutes instead of like 12. And then they, they, they did the rest of the match. Um, at one point, um, um, where there's this move where Aries and Shelly hold up Jacobs for a double vertical suplex. And Evans basically jumps over the top of Jacobs and grabs his leg on the way down to drive him down in the suplex. Um, and Nolte goes, Jiminy Cricket, he was airborne. Which <laughs> I wish I could, I got, I could just like naturally put that into my lexicon. Yelling like Jiminy Cricket in excitement, but I, I don't think I can do it. Um, here's the thing that, that, that I didn't really understand. So like punk got a hot tag and then like the hot part of the tag lasted like a minute and then it just settled into like a pretty regular match. Um, but then Aries and punk did this crisscross spot when then Aries all of a sudden while crisscrossing does a sudden baseball slide into Tracy Brooks. First of all, violence against women. I'm still not into it. Um, <laughs> like I still think it's bad, but the camera totally missed it. And I wrote down, like, well, that'll it finally ratchet up the intensity. But then it kind of doesn't. Like, it ratchets it up for, like, about a minute. Then Steamboat helps Tracy Brooks to the back. And then it just becomes a normal match again, back in the ring. Like, the same level of intensity, basically, with Punk as the face in peril. And it goes on for a long time. And I don't know. Like, I just, like, I thought that was a good opportunity to, like, just, like, have the match get, get, get to hard-hitting mode and then end. But instead, they just really slow it down again, and it just that just didn't work for me. I don't know. Like you know, there were still cool spots, like like Steel holding up Jack Evans for a spinal shock, and while he's holding up Jack, CM Punk hitting a swanton onto Jack, like and then Steel hitting the spinal shock. Like that's a crazy move, and like you don't certainly not one you'd expect CM Punk to do, and like just goes to the point he was really feeling it this weekend. Yeah. I was going to say, like, you, could, you that's the kind of thing that CM Punk probably only attempts when he's like, I'm on a roll. Like, just because, yeah. yeah, I was shocked. Yeah. That. I mean, that's a, that's a crazy high spot. That's really cool. And CM Punk's not usually the crazy high spot kind of guy. Um, and Evans is not usually the one on the receiving end of such high spots. Um, <laughs> but, um, like, th- that happened after Punk got this really big hot tag after a long heat sequence. And then Punk was just back in the ring right away. Even Nolte pointed it out. Like, why is he back already? And then he was the face in peril again. And Jacobs came in and hit the Contra Code on Shelley while splashing Aries on the way down. You know, that's that's all good stuff. Um, it's funny because, like, there was almost like a preview of the ending of Aries and Punk's title match where Punk wins the title months later, where Aries goes to Pepsi Plunge Punk. Punk fought him off, went for one of his own, but Aries backdropped him. Um, then, of course, Strong hit the ring, and Gabe calls him Roderick Steele, I guess because he has a steel chair. I don't know. And, you know, Steamboat grabs the chair away, blah, blah, blah. And, and then um, Steamboat picks Punk up, and Punk hits the Pepsi plunge on Aries for the win. So, like, the ending had some good drama and some good spots, but, like, why did it have to be as long as it was? I guess if you if you appreciate, um, like, the whole house showness of it, like, kind of like the, the looseness of it, I could see that. It didn't work for me on that level. I think a, a point I, I failed to mention this, and I think you did a good job highlighting it, is um, there's a, there's a weird we, – we talk about like the looseness and the house show feel. But like you mentioned, it's weird that 
Two times in this match, Tracy Brooks, who was CM Punk's girlfriend at this time, and I think they acknowledge that during the show, like Aries like goes to a goes after her early, and that starts this brawl. And then later, he intentionally drop kicks her, and Ricky Steamboss take her to the back. And both times, you think, well, this should give Punk a reason just to go apes in this match to get intense. And both times, it doesn't really ratchet up at all. And in fact, at the end of the match, like Steamboat and Punk and everyone are doing the Hus gimmick together and like laughing and joking around. It's like, dude, your girlfriend just got drop kicked, and you don't know how she's doing. Like, like. It, it, it's like she it felt like they were like used her as a prop with no payoff like you kept expecting well her getting taken out is going to lead to some kind of payoff spot or change the course of the match and really it just felt like they just did it just to do it like it, yeah, it, it was you're a right. weird thing that didn't even occur to me that like cm punk was hussing with steamboat and jacobs at the end of the match and it's like uh <laughs> <I'm> tra- <laughs> if i were tracy i'd be pretty pissed like you saw, she got drop kicked and had to be like helped to the back by Steamboat. Yeah, and you're now you're just like, huh, this is this has been a fun time, folks. Yeah, yeah. Punk takes the time to like do the belt motion and like, <laughs> yeah, it's just like, yeah, you're right. Like it makes it he would just like immediately win the match and run to the back, right? Like that's yeah, that would sell that angle. But they never really make Tracy a character. I mean, she's no. still with TNA, so it's sort of like they never really go in on her being part of the storylines. But it's like. Yes, it's not like she was a prop here. She was a prop here because she, like, she she's never given a character ever in ROH ever, and she's not, um, and she's not really cared after by her boyfriend. Which you know, <laughs> I don't know what the I don't know what their real life relationship was like, but if I were her as a character, I'd be pretty pissed. It, it has to be as simple as like, um, as you know, Punk's girlfriend was in town. She's here anyway. Why not have her on the show? Hey, if she's on the show, why don't we do a spot? But again, it just it does not fit the rest of the match or the tone of anything that happens. But. Right? They were like, Allison's not here to take a, a, a violence against women, so <laughs> maybe Tracy can do it. <laughs> um, uh, our little dose of like weird treatment of women. Uh, at one point, uh, Mark Nolte gets on the Jerry Lawler act where when Jacobs needs to make a hot tag, Nolte says, follow the beacons at ringside, which, of course, the beacons are Tracy Brooks' breasts. Uh, um, yeah, but to sum up this match, if you want oh, to see oh, oh, match- I got, oh, I got another Mark Nolte line, actually. Oh, go on. Where go. he's talking about, you know, he, he actually he, he kind of calls out the whole, um, you know, being called misogynistic early. Uh, earlier in the show and uh, let me find the line oh man I lost it Um, oh boy okay so I I can't find it but here's basically what he says he says I don't mind women at ringside when they're a part of the match and not on an episode of Star Search and I'm like that's not helping your cause and also that's not a that that isn't even uh, that's outdated in 2004 (laughs) Talk about fucking star search. Oh, that's true. Also, yeah. Um, uh, also, this is another match where, right near the end, they had a legal men lay out the legal man once on each team, and the ref make a point going, "No, I won't count this." So they really did go all out this night trying to sell that they had changed on that. Um, I guess the best way to sum this up is if you want like a great intense, meaningful, important Ring of Honor main event. This isn't the match for you. If you want, like, maybe a three-and-a-half-star match where CM Punk does the robot and Ace Steel does a hot tag wearing Jack Evans' do-rag, well, then 
this is the best match you'll ever see. But yeah, that sums up the main event. So after the match, the winning team celebrates. And oh, this is another great moment. Alex Shelley, I don't know if you picked this up. So like you mentioned, Matt, I didn't mention it. I, I should have. Near the end of the match, uh, Roderick Strong came in with the chair. Steamboat took him out to give you the, you know, the Steamboat wrestling for the night. Give fans a nice pop so at the end of the match after it's over shelly's on the outside and he says to roderick strong you were supposed to and then shelly mime swing a chair and he goes you were supposed to and he mime swing and he goes with a chair like la parka and then he pauses and then he just screams la parka and, and he's just <laughs> so mad at strong well not mad but just like shelly and as we record this shelly just debuted back in impact as the motor city machine guns with a Chris Saban, and I really hope good things for Alex Shelley because he is so underrated in these little comedy moments like that. He just he's so good in the little things that maybe you might not see that are like just barely getting caught by the camera. I just he's, love that stuff. He's impossible to dislike. Yeah, he, he well, um, I know some message board. There are some people that definitely don't like his wrestling, but uh, I. Well, that's a per I, as I a like as a person. <laughs> yeah, he seems like a good guy. Um. So cut to backstage for our final segment. Uh, Steamboat is there. He says, Generation Next got a take, taste of what happens when you get up in his biz- in his face. And then Steamboat reveals his two chosen wrestlers for tomorrow's tag against Mick Foley's team, which we do not get told who they are. I guess we can assume they're Moff and Whitmer. But he shows us it's Chad Collier, Nigel McGuinness. They awkwardly pose. Mark Nolte, and- is, Mark Nolte is like, it should have been Josh Daniels. <laughs> that's the that's the Jimmy Cricket. That's a real tag team. <laughs> uh, so that's the end of Ring of Honor Gold. The, my first time ever seeing the show. One Ste- of the rare shows. Well, sorry, Steamboat actually says at the end of that promo to McFoley, "Bring your bad boys on." <laughs> <laughs> Ricky Steamboat's a good promo. I feel uh, like he. I feel like he did some of those animated promos in his life in ROH, and they're just very funny. Yeah, I, lo- I love his energy. I love his dad energy in Ring of Honor. I know. But so that's Ring of Honor Gold. That is definitely probably one of the most B shows we've covered in a long time. In a long, in in a long time, yeah. And again, it amazes me that this is the show that Dayton really came out for. And maybe it just again, maybe it's because the last show was such a had such a strong match on it. But and and if I looked, I I won't run it down now, but like. All of the cards Dayton gets for 2005 are all better than this, on paper at least. 2005, um, ROH gave Dayton some real good stuff. Yeah. I mean, stuff like um, the finals of the Aries uh, – no, not Aries, but the finals of the Homicide Danielson five-match series, which I think is in a steel cage. I think it's where um, Jamie Noble wins the Ring of Honor title. I'm not it, sure. It definitely is, yeah. So, so yeah, they get big – they gave, to his credit – if he was kind of maybe not giving them his best foot forward here because he was thinking maybe this might be the last show, he definitely rewards them in 2005 in terms of some big matches for a kind of a, a second-tier market. But um, as a show, I thought this was uh, – I, I think it says something we've talked about in the past that Ring of Honor had such depth and was on such a good streak that even a um, – a not great show is still very watchable. I would I would say this is very watchable. I would say this is the closest to not watch. Like it, it, it's 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 a perfectly fine way to pass the time. Uh, Punk and Homicide is a legit very good match. Not quite like you have to go out of your way to see it, but legit pretty darn good. It's just 
it, it, it's a it's the one of the most inessential shows, uh, maybe the most inessential Ring of Honor show of the entire year. Uh, yeah, I could I could see that. I, I, it, pro- it probably is. Like you know that you got shows like from Earl, like real early in the year, like The Last Stand. You know, yeah. which which like you could see maybe making the case for, but this is this is I gives it a run for its money. But Homicide versus Punk is one of you know it's 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 a, it's in a, the top third of matches I would say from the year. Like it's a really really good match, and like I said, I think the best opener they ever did, at least up until this point in the history of the company. So that's not nothing. Um, but but yeah, now this show is um, it's it's not much. It's it's it's. It was it was wasn't bad, but it was not particularly good. Yeah, and but again, if this is the worst Ring of Honor gets in two thousand four, pretty darn good year for for them for sure. And that brings us to the end of the show. So if you want to contact us through the years at gmail.com. be like Michael Laney. If you have a great lives event story in particular, if you have magazine scans to send us. Any magazine, good housekeeping, just scan it, send it to us. Uh, T H R O. Okay, maybe not. I, I, yeah. I already regret saying that. Keep it, keep it PG rated. <laughs> um, uh, Twitter at Trevor Dame or at Mayor MGF for Matt. Um, MGF. I just want to make sure I said that clearly. I've been stumbling over some words tonight. I swear to God, I'm not drunk. I wasn't celebrating just because it's the 50th episode. Um, it's very, it's fr- very hot here. I might be like heat. Oh, drunk. it's boiling here. Yeah. Uh, it, um, pro wrestling only. We have a message board in the plug section if you want. If preferred to contact us that way. Uh, I have a dumb Patreon, completely unrelated to this, at www.patreon.com/slash/mecca/mecca. That is M-E-C-C-A twice in a row. Some people like it. Some people don't. Um, and that brings us to Matt. We are finally in that special time of the year because we are in – starting with the next show, we are in the final five shows of the year, which means it's the countdown to final battle. It's the countdown to our end-of-the-year summary where we give some – our honors out, where our little awards. We recap some things. We kind of give overall thoughts. Always a fun time. And I would argue, Matt, looking over the next five shows – this is probably in, this might be the most eventful five consecutive show stretch in the Gabe era of Ring of Honor ever because we got starting with the next show we are going to cover next time Punk versus Joe Two, um, which one is of the most important. So, Go on. No. no, I was going to say which is still to a lot of people the greatest match in ROH history. And it was also a little spoiler. Some of the news we'll talk about. It was the best-selling DVD Ring of Honor ever put out up to this point. It was a match that got them way more like attention in the ways. It was the first five-star match Dave Meltzer had given a match from America, I believe, in seven years back before Dave gave them out every two seconds. Um, so that's a huge show. After that, we've got both nights of the Weekend of Thunder double shot, which is Liger coming to Ring of Honor, including his um. For night one, that's him versus Danielson. Night two, it's the dream tag of him and Joe versus Danielson and Loki. Then after that, we've got All-Star Extravaganza 2, which is Joe versus Punk, the end of the trilogy, plus Jim Cornette facing off against Bobby Heenan for the first time ever. And that third and that third Punk versus Joe match, some people like that even better than the hour-long matches. Yeah, and we'll have to, we'll have to, you know, we'll, we'll obviously only we can decide for sure. We are the authorities until really, we decide. Yeah. Really only me. Um, but yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll take your lead on this one. And then, 
<laughs> and then finally, then we'll have the year-end award show, which will also be Final Battle, which is the end of Samoa Joe's title reign, losing to Austin Aries. So that's five straight shows. There is not – every show is huge. There is not a weak one in the thing. It's just – a crazy run, and it all starts with the next episode. So if you thought, I like doing the, these B-shows. I feel like we find fun little things. I think we found a lot of little weird things that happened during the show that people won't remember or never talked about. But if you're the ones that you just like, I want them to cover the big shows well, the next five shows should be like friggin' through the year's heaven for you because they're all big. Yeah, the no, no, there are no more B-shows this year. <laughs> yeah. So – that's the show. Thank you for listening to us for 50 episodes or one episode or whatever. Thank you for plugging us, supporting us, being nice to us, for spending any time of your life, which is, you know, time, our most valuable commodity on the show. I hope it continues to be as fun as it has been. I thank Matt so much for asking me to do this and getting me to come out and do this. Um, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. <laughs>